going on everybody it's your boy jordan and this is desmond and welcome to episode 164 of two black nerds that's right it's that time once again for us to bring you our opinions and hot takes on all things fandom pop culture and entertainment as always you can find two black nerds wherever you get your podcasts please make sure to hit that subscribe button and leave us a friendly rating and comment to show your support and of course join in on the conversation each and every week by following us on twitter instagram and tiktok at two black nerds we appreciate that love y'all and let's not forget to mention we have brand new merchandise that's available now at twoblacknerds.com go check out our two black nerds forever collection inspired by black panther wakanda forever we got t-shirts crew next hoodie stickers mugs and tote bags so go ahead and place those orders right now on today's season finale we'll be catching up on all the films and tv series we've missed in the year 2022 be sure to stick around to hear our quick thoughts on shows like Netflix's Wednesday, Season 2 of Abbott Elementary, HBO's The White Lotus, and the final episodes of Atlanta. Plus, we have a ton of trailers and news to catch up on, including Henry Cavill's exit as Superman and the new look at Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse. But before we get to any and all of that, we're kicking off this week's podcast with a review of the long-awaited sequel to the highest-grossing film of all time, Avatar The Way of Water. Why do you come to us? I just want to keep my family safe. Treat them as our brothers and sisters. Teach them our ways. Keep up for us, boy! If you want to live here, you have to ride. Let's do it. Just breathe, breathe. Outcast, that's all they see. I see. Like you, I'm supposed to fight. Protect the people. Let's get it done.
Now, this film is directed by James Cameron, and it's written by James Cameron, Rick Jaffa, and Amanda Silver, and it's starring Sam Worthington, Zoe Saldana, Sigourney Weaver, Stephen Lang, and Kate Winslet. So, as it's known across the world, the first Avatar film, which came out all the way back in 2009, quickly became a cultural phenomenon at the time of its release, at least, and became the highest grossing movie ever. With that type of success, it was a no-brainer that they were going to make sequels to the original Avatar film. In fact, they initially greenlighted two sequels all the way back in 2010. Again, to be expected that something like that would happen relatively quickly after the release of that first film. And I think we, we all sort of remember that time for that film sort of revolutionizing the technology of CGI as well as 3D. Mm-hmm. And it became this really, really important moment for cinema and for big budget tentpole blockbuster films. But in the interim, it's taken 13 years for the sequel to come out. It's been a long and arduous process to actually have The Way of Water release wide in theaters. And it just came out this past weekend, thankfully. But in the time between the first Avatar and this movie, they've undergone undergone so many different changes, so many transitions. They had COVID happen. There was a five-year production process that started back in 2017. Technology hadn't quite caught up. So for a long time, I think a lot of people didn't think that this movie would actually come out with all of the delays occurred but it is in fact out it is a real movie that we luckily got the chance to see this past weekend so with all of that out the way man i will pass it over to you finally to give your thoughts what did you think about avatar the way of water man where is it even possible to start on such a big film that is way of the water and that is such a big director as james cameron man this man has been a part of i think our cinematic lives for you know really as as long as we've been born between terminators and titanics and aliens and things like that so it's 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 crazy to even think about think about where how we've gotten here after so many years after that first avatar film man it's been such a a a low-key a journey you know a lot of us do pay attention to that stuff and people ask people ask me sometimes like when is this avatar movie coming out i've heard that over the past couple years but man a lot of times your guess is as good as mine. We have an idea, but man, this process is is long and it's it's tumultuous. Um, so to to be here now with this movie being out, man, that in itself is already I think it's crazy to think about because it has been so long. I remember being in the theater seeing the original Avatar in three D at that, um, and remember how I think enthralled I was and how beautiful that that film was at the time and what it was doing in the box office. It's just as watching this film, I was remembering all of those things. And in, in, and in that being said, it's 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 so weird to get a movie for me that feels like you both repeated a lot of the stuff you weren't probably supposed to repeat in this film, but you also still gave us, I think, another technical masterpiece, I think, to to hold on to and to to revel with in this new in this new film it's 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 so it's such an interesting body of work to me because there's so many things i like about it but i also see so many of the problems with it as well um first and foremost the thing i mean it's it can't be said enough we already know that this james cameron is playing with all the toys here man he's playing with all the the cameras he's playing with all the 3ds he's playing with all the things that you just couldn't play with um, in in his early in the times of his early filmmaking. He's 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 really using all of those those tools and those things to try to make the movie going experience 
what it's supposed to be about. And I will say that about this film, man. This is a movie that's literally made for the movie theaters. That is the reason I think the movies is celebrated in the way the movies are celebrated, man. It's big, crazy action that we're seeing on the screen um, in, in in a beautiful way. You know, he sought out to for another achievement to, so, to slowly push his boundaries of what it means to to make a film that looks good that's majority cgi he really did that's what he that's what he was here to do when he did that unfortunately in the wake of that he clearly did a lot of like weird tone deafy stuff with the characters here what the, the thing about this movie there's three movies in this movie to me there's a revenge story there's a family movie and there's an adventure movie this movie works best when it's an adventure movie and it also works best when it's, an fa- when it's a family movie when it's a revenge movie, it makes zero sense. Like, there's not a lot <laughs> to talk about there. There's not a lot going on there um, in terms of motiv- character motivations, why we're even here to begin with. Um, but but that being said, even the adventure and family of it all does have its issues when it comes to, uh, uh, first of all, the things James Cameron has said in interviews that seem, quote unquote, problematic in in the ideas he has for his characters. But not implementing implementing them in the film um, probably the way he should have if you're doing a uh, uh, cultural appreciation rather than cultural appropriation. But not only that, there are things that I feel like he could have he he, he could have even touched upon that would talk about those themes. You know, there are parts of the movie I'm like, okay, you might have something here, James Cameron, but he takes the more so the 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 backseat approach. Where, uh, rather than actually addressing it head on. Um, a very big example of this was like, James Cameron, what the hell are you doing? It's one of the, is the everybody's been talking about on the internet, of course, is the character Spider. No spoilers here. But it's it's a little white kid with dreads, man. And there's a little quote in here where he says, I feel faster when I'm blue. He like paints paint himself. It's like, oh, I feel faster when I'm blue. And that stuff is, is a lot of weird uh, uh, shit going on, I think, in that, uh, character choice, man. Why? Why that character exists? What's the point of that character? Really, is it's a lot of weird stuff um, um, going on there, and there's a lot that James Cameron I think deserves some of the the criticism that he's going to get for a lot of the again kind of cultural tone deafness that he has um, in this film. So uh, I think all of that is warranted. And I think all that is fair. That being said, I still had a good time watching the film. I, I recognize all that stuff being terrible. I recognize all that stuff that he needs to be criticized for, whether it's, again, not giving the right appreciation to the Maori people or indigenous people or what, or repeating the colonial colonialism thing. I, I understand all of that. But I think, again, as an adventure movie, as a family movie, a lot of that stuff did work for me. As a beautiful thing I'm looking at on the screen, that stuff did work for me. Um, and I'm not giving him a pass for all, all the other stuff either. But some of these other things he did, was good and it was amazing and it, it was uh, I, this movie is what three hours and 15 minutes i was in it uh I, i've seen a lot of people say the pacing wasn't there for them i think i admit the first hour where we're still actually in in the original jungle part of pandora yes <laughs> that's a that was a, a little slow in the beginning but i was in it i was in the movie for the most part because i was entertained uh maybe whether it was what i was watching on the screen was beautiful or whether it was the family aspect of it all one of the i think highlights uh, uh of this film for me by far is Zoe Saldana as Natiri. i think she killed it i didn't have enough of her um but anytime she's on screen i'm i'm 
I think I'm where I'm supposed to be in, in, in watching the film. There's another things with the movie, of course, that could be talked about uh, that that may not work for everybody. But again, the family aspect to me, seeing their kids venture off into a world that isn't theirs, seeing the character Kitty do what she needs to do in order to, to exist in this story, I think was, was some really cool things being done. Unfortunately, there's a lot of callbacks, not a callbacks, there's a lot of things in this film that you feel like they were clearly set up for something else that are never talked about anymore. Um, some of those things kind of annoyed me a little bit um, because it's like, oh, we get it, more films are coming, but you should address that right now. Why aren't we talking about that again? So some of that stuff um, was was a little annoying for me by the end. But but overall, man, I think this is a, a, another achievement in terms of filmmaking, maybe not in terms of <laughs> cultural you know, appreciation or or being being aware of the movie you're making or being aware of what it means to actually take from, you know, some of these cultures and in, in present them on screen in the correct way. Maybe not in that in that aspect. But again, as a fun family in in a, a adventure movie, man, I, I, I was entertained and I absolutely had a great time seeing this in theaters, man. It's it's. I think this movie warrants a ton of conversation, which is part of the reason why I like it too. Is like absolutely hold these people accountable. Absolutely bring attention to these indigenous things, to these tone deaf things that that uh, James Cameron should be held accountable for. But overall, man, this is a this is this is another achievement I think in in James Cameron. In some ways, even though he he did it again, and that it's not completely. For the best, <laughs> some ways he did it again for the worst, but in a lot of ways he did it again for um, I think another another goalpost moving forward for what uh, filmmaking to that degree looks like. So we're going to talk about this film at length here, not really getting into spoilers, but there's some other angles to look at this movie from. But before we get to that, just to give my thoughts, you know, James Cameron, Big Jim. He is one of the most legendary, well-known, and iconic directors of the past 50 years. He's created some of the most important movies, and he's been behind some of the most important technical achievements that Hollywood has achieved over the course of the past 30 or so years. When you think about the CGI revolution, James Cameron was at the forefront of that revolution, working hand-in-hand with a lot of those artists. I talked about it earlier this year on the podcast, but I would recommend people, if you want to know more about that, Go watch the um, the the Light and Magic documentary that's on Disney Plus about the history of Industrial mm-hmm. Light and Magic, one of the foremost important CGI companies in Hollywood history. And James Cameron was very much involved in the process of of, of inventing a lot of that technology on films like The Abyss and T two, which ultimately kind of led into the the revolution, which really kicked off with the first Jurassic Park movie. But the guy has just always pushed the medium of filmmaking forward, especially from a technical standpoint. And we saw him do that with the 2009 Avatar film. I think that that's largely why that film became so successful, because he made it an event that you had to experience and see in the movie theater, Mm -hmm. even though it might not have been the greatest story ever ever told, even though it was derivative of other stories that we've seen. That didn't really matter, because what he had done was something unlike we had ever seen before. It created a really, really positive and good trend in terms of what we should hold our quality of filmmaking to when it comes to the technical Mm. standpoint. But it also Mm. set off a couple of bad trends, noticeably the 3D trend, which I absolutely hated for the next five or six years when it was just running rampant 
over every big budget movie. Every big budget movie decided, oh, we have to we have to have our film be available in 3D. The problem was is that they would always just post convert their films into 3D as opposed to filming in 3D, which is what James Cameron did in that original Avatar movie. Now, coming into the way of water, he was again trying to advance technology to a new level that hadn't really been done before. A lot of this movie obviously revolves around water and underwater sequences. And going into this movie, you just had to wonder and question, well, what is he going to be able to achieve here? Because this is a guy whose entire career has been wrapped up into the significance of water. All of his mm-hmm. movies pretty much have some sort yeah. of important note about water and how they relate to humanity and the storytelling at front. You look at Titanic, you look at The Abyss, like they're all there. And James Cameron, in addition to like integrating this love of water and the sea and the ocean so much, which is like a personal project, from a filmmaking standpoint, he's almost a one of one. He's the king of sequels. He's created some of the best sequels in modern Hollywood history. Aliens is excellent. Terminator 2, one of the most important action movies ever made. And I would say now Avatar The Way of Water fits alongside those two movies as just taking everything up to another level and Mm -hmm. advancing everything that he set out to do in that first movie and really just doubling down on it and plussing it in almost every way imaginable. Because when you look at this movie, just from a technical standpoint, it is it is absolutely astonishing what he is able to achieve on screen and what he's able to really accomplish within the within the framework of this movie and those underwater sequences that happen really a, around the midway point of this film where it becomes so integral mm-hmm. to the story. Well, folks, the reason it looks so real is because it is real. They didn't create digitized water. They did performance capture in real water. They actually filmed this stuff. That's why it looks so good. And that just reminds you of like, the thinking and the and the and the process of James Cameron and what he does and how it's just it's different than other filmmakers in Hollywood. He doesn't see things I don't think the same way that many other filmmakers do. And when you talk about blockbusters and just these huge giant films that come out year to year and now, you know, within the 13 years since that first Avatar movie, the superhero movie craze has taken over. They dominate the box office. Marvel is absolutely king. That is not to be debated. But Every so often you get somebody that comes along and says like, well, okay, yes, you guys are at the top of the mountain, but let me show you what I can do. Let me show you why I'm still so important. And this is not to tear down Marvel in any in any regard. I, I love Marvel. Mm-hmm. We talk about them all the time on this podcast, but it is just so interesting to me when you get a filmmaker who is so passionate about one idea and one thing, and he spends yeah. 13 years of his life conceiving, overseeing, and executing, and you see what it produces. I'm sorry to say, but nothing from any other studio, forget Marvel, from any other studio, from any other franchise can compare to what he's accomplishing here from a technical standpoint. It is unparalleled. It is nothing Mm -hmm. like it. Visually, you just won't you won't see anything else out there like this movie. So you just have to shout out and give props to him as a filmmaker, to the digital effects artists behind this movie, the folks at Weta, who were mostly, you know, responsible for a lot Mm -hmm. of these effects, the performance capture the facial stuff, the photorealism of it, it is just mind-blowing how good it looks, how impressive yeah. it is, and how consistent he is because we felt that same way in 2009. And you and I saw the re-release earlier this year, and that movie still holds up. But then to come into this movie and see that yeah. it actually excels and takes everything to another level, it's really astonishing to think about. And I think even beyond that, when you look at James Cameron as a storyteller and just like what he sets out to do from a filmmaking standpoint in terms of character, emotion, 
One other thing that I have to give this movie props for is really focusing more on the intimate, focusing on a little bit of a, in my perspective, a smaller story, because this isn't necessarily about saving the world. This isn't about saving Pandora. There is obviously some political messaging he, in here. There's some environmental things that are, that are you know, sort mm-hmm. of integrated into the story. That's, that's what James Cameron does. But this is, a, this is a movie about family. This is a movie about a small cohort of people and how they're navigating their family dynamic. And that's what he's always excelled at. James Cameron is not the strongest writer in Hollywood. That is no surprise. He's never <laughs> He never has been. And even watching this movie, I'm like, you know, it sounds like a lot of this dialogue came out of a movie from the 80s. And mm-hmm. I will give him credit for bringing in, bringing in a writing team this time around. He wrote the first one by himself. This time he had like two other writers. He had a story team of five people. So I did see some improvements, but it still it still feels like a James Cameron movie from a script standpoint it's just not the greatest but what makes his movie so successful over the past 40 40 or so years is that even with the sci-fi themes and these really sort of big heady ideas at the center of the story the the really sexy stuff that we see underneath it all are these universal these universal things that everybody can relate to because if you look at his past movies everything kind of revolves around family or romanticism Mm -hmm. or relationships like Terminator 2 is a movie about a mother and her son. Aliens is a movie about two mothers protecting their children. Mm. True Lies even is a movie about a Great husband movie. and a wife and the and the transparency that they have with each other. Titanic is a romantic movie. Avatar 1 is a romantic movie. And now this movie, mm-hmm. again, is going back to a tried and true theme about family and how one navigates the new relationship with their wife, their significant other, and the introduction of new children that they have to protect. And I'm not a parent, but when you become a parent, you just naturally have to move differently. The things that you would do maybe in your younger life when you didn't really have much responsibility or risks, you just wouldn't do that the same way when you have children to think about and protect. And that was all very much present throughout this story. And I thought that that worked really, really well because that made it feel different enough from the first movie that I could appreciate those things that you can actually take a look and say, wow, this guy is actually taking this story, making it a little bit more intimate But raising the stakes emotionally, because all throughout this film, I actually felt that there was a true sense of peril for the Mm -hmm. family, that they were actually in danger. And I think that that's missing from so many big blockbuster movies where you actually don't feel like your protagonist or your hero is in any real danger. Mm -hmm. I felt real danger for these characters here. And that's a that's a really rare thing to feel. What else is very rare in today's sort of modern society of like blockbusters is the fact that there's nothing cynical about this movie. He wears his heart on his sleeve. James Cameron, like he puts it all out there emotionally. He's not cynical about anything. And this world of Pandora, this family and just like how people move and navigate through this world. It's just full of love and light and emotion. And and I think mm-hmm. in a lot of other big, blo- big blockbuster movies, we do get a, a touch of cynicism here and there. Or there's a sense of irony or there's like a winking nature like, you know, we're trying to talk to you and send you this message. And that's just not apparent here for better and for worse. You know, and I think. On the, on the opposite end of the spectrum, when I walked out of this movie, as exhilarating as it felt to see something just so technically proficient, so masterfully done, it is not perfect, and there certainly are flaws that exist within it. I do think that the movie is too long, like flat out just too long. And James Cameron is not known to make short movies. All of his movies are ridiculously long, so mm-hmm. was a surprise to see a runtime of three hours, 12 minutes, whatever the case may be. It's like one minute shorter than Titanic. But for me, the pacing (laughs) of the film in the middle of it, there's a certain sequence as it relates to the ocean, as it relates to certain sea creatures where I was sitting there like, why is this happening? 
what's the point of this? Like, what are we doing right now? And eventually that stuff is revealed. It just takes a while to get there. And right. and 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 the, the positive aspect is that because these characters are now being introduced to a new world, very much like how it went in the first movie, you do just get some opportunity and time to just experience this. Like, there isn't any story. You're just kind of sitting there mm-hmm. like, oh, we're just kind of vibing out and watching like everything that's unfolding. It feels like a documentary almost. And I enjoyed that stuff, but from a story perspective, I did find that the momentum was lost somewhat midway through. I find myself, you know, mentally checking out both times I saw it. I was like, okay, well, I think that we could have maybe moved this along a little bit quicker. That being said, the third act, once it gets going, it's crazy. The action crazy. is ridiculous. James Cameron, again, reminds people why there's really nobody like him that that can direct action in that particular way. It's violent. It's more violent than I thought it would be. I would definitely mm-hmm. caution against taking super, super young children because... There's some really hard images in this movie. And again, that sense of peril is very, very present. And overall, this was a really, a really masterful achievement across the board. I will just end in saying that I do think that the first one is still a superior movie only because Mm -hmm. there's a sense of novelty that you get in that first movie that you just can't really recreate here. Like, yes, you can introduce new characters, a new civilization, a new side of Pandora. But that first one was just such a unexpected moment in Hollywood like nobody saw Mm -hmm. Avatar coming everybody thought it was gonna bomb and just be a terrible disaster obviously it was the opposite and when you just sit there and watch that first movie you're just like wow I've never seen anything like this before and when we saw that re-release earlier this year I was like Jesus Christ how how does this still make me feel this way Mm -hmm. 13 years later and coming into this one a lot of that just isn't there just due to the fact that they have to add on to the story. They have to tell more things. They have to further advance the story and the world and the characters because this is now a franchise. This is going to continue theoretically for more movies. One other big gripe I do just want to quickly mention. I think the sidelining of Natiri in this movie is a big crime. Mm-hmm. Zoe Saldana, to me, mm-hmm. is the strongest part of any yep. of this. And this is really a movie about more so than parents is really about fatherhood. Like it's like if we're being honest, Mm -hmm. it's about fathers and the mother characters, not only her character, but who Kate Winslet plays. They kind of just stomp around and be angry, you know, for for most of the movie. And I don't really like that. I think that there's there's so much more you can do with them. And hopefully we see a lot of that, you know, come to light in the next movie. But I do think that Zoe Saldana and Terry, she is the strongest asset Mm -hmm. that you have in this franchise. And so you have to use her. And I found I found the sidelining of her character to be to be disappointing. But that being said, this is this is an absolute achievement and it demands to be seen in the best format possible on the biggest screen possible. I I truly believe and I'm not passing judgment, but I believe if you like hold off and just wait to watch this at home in your living room on a TV, get it. You're doing yourself a disservice and you won't enjoy the movie as much. I, I, I truly believe that that this is meant to be enjoyed more so in a big theatrical experience with the community of people on the best screen possible with the best format possible like. This is one of those rare cases where that is the case. And I wouldn't always advocate for that because, you know, save your money if you can. And if it's not worth it, then don't go see it. But look, this is what this is made for. This is why movie theaters still exist because of an experience like this. And so overall, I think it's a really fantastic achievement. And as we've been sort of saying all year, never bet against James Cameron. Like if you're in the business of doing that, I I don't really get and understand you. I think I think a lot of people who poo-poo Avatar and talk shit about it. In reality, probably just haven't seen his other movies. If we're just being completely honest, they haven't seen The mm. Abyss. They haven't seen True Lies. Mm-hmm. They haven't seen Aliens. Like oh, everybody's seen T2, but like, you know, this man produces quality. You know what he's capable of. And so if you are actually ingratiated with the work that he's done for so long now, you really wouldn't have a reason to look at him and say, like, yeah, that's going to be just complete trash. Now, if you feel that way despite all of that stuff, then so be it. But that's just my perspective on it. 
in other sort of news and another angle to look at this movie from when we talk about the technical aspects of it, because that is so much of the conversation. You know, it's really hard to talk about this movie without mentioning just like what they do behind the scenes to bring it to life. One of the changes with this movie that we didn't see in the previous film is the use of a variable frame rate. Now, a lot of people might not necessarily understand what that means, but mm -hmm. for most of Hollywood history, the vast majority of films have been shot in a cinematic standard, 24 frames per second. That means that there's 24 still images that are displayed yep. on the screen every second. That creates the illusion of emotion. Most films are shot this way. It's extremely standard and has been the case for nearly 100 years now. There have recently been some exceptions to this. Most notably, Peter Jackson, he tried out a higher frame rate with the Hobbit films. And then also Ang Lee tried it out with 2019's Gemini Man, a film that we actually reviewed on this podcast a few years ago. He shot that movie, certain action sequences, at 120 frames per second, which is just like Crazy. unheard of. Mm -hmm. Now, you and I, we play video games. We know now the standard for really high performing video games is 60 frames per second because you mm -hmm. just need that fluidity, that motion. If you have a video game moving at 24 frames per second, it feels choppy. It feels clunky. It just doesn't yep. feel as good as it needs to. But film is different, obviously, than the video game medium. As we sat here and watched this movie, it became very apparent to me early on that this was using a variable frame rate. Some sequences are shot in 24 frames per second. Mm -hmm. Some are shot in 48. It moves back and forth a lot, like maybe no less than like 100 times. Like it, it actually becomes, I think, a pretty jarring transition if your eye notices it. Mm -hmm. And many people at home, if you have a high performing television, an HDTV, a plasma, whatever the case may be, there's that effect that's called like the stop or the the, the smoothing effect or the cinema effect that that creates that 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 very smooth process of film that makes it almost look like a soap, soap opera. Um, did you notice this when you were watching the movie? Did it bother you? Did you, did you think it worked? How did you feel about just the use of this new technology and, and for James Cameron to use it so frequently all throughout the movie? Yeah, I, I absolutely noticed it. Um, I didn't know how many frames it was, though, until after. <laughs> until I, you know, I was like, yeah, something's going on with this frame right here. I don't know what it is, but I can't wait to figure it out. But I absolutely noticed it. It it I don't know if it took me out of it completely, but I will say in certain moments, I was just paying attention to that. If that makes sense. Like I was like, hmm, this is interesting. I don't really care about what any character is saying right now or what's happening on the screen. But this 48 frames is I don't I don't know what's going on here. Again, I didn't know how many frames it was before and I do now. But it's it's crazy, man. Um and I think I think part of the the interesting thing is him is James Cameron trying to raise the frame rate but still make it cinematic. I think I like that approach at least. Like I like the idea that he went for it. That being said, I I don't think it always worked for me. I'm very sound mind that if something takes me out of it, then it's doing too much a lot of times. Um and and that is exactly what was happening every now and then. I'm like, hmm. What what I will say is sometimes it was long enough, right? The the scene was long enough, the 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 moment was long enough for me to be like, oh okay, we're back in forty eight or whatever, how many frames? And then I'm like, I forget about it. Now I'm in back in the story. Then it'll switch again. I'm like, damn, you kind of took me out of it a little bit again. Um, so yeah, man, it 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 was like a it was again. I like the ambition, but I'm also like, if it takes me out of it, you don't have to do it. You know, I feel like you still could accomplish what you accomplished potentially without that. I will say. 
this man is clearly out to make history. Like, and so, you know, him doing something like this, he's like, oh, let's just add something else to the resume. I'm the first person to ever shoot a movie in 48 frames per second for a good amount of the movie. Let me do that. Um, and I think part of, part of me wishes he could have just tried it for the whole movie, as hard as that sounds, or, you know, it, they're just moments that, like you said, you're going to get images, they just look too crisp. They look too crisp. There's too much movement going on there's too much you know uh uh brightness or unusual looking movement that's happening and so uh uh but a lot of times that's our eyes adjusting so part of me wishes if you start like that just just stay like that or if you're not gonna if you're not gonna start like that just then just don't do it maybe if you do do it do it a couple sequences you know what i'm saying do it a sequence that you're like no, these are the ones, they make sense, these are my favorite parts of the movie, <laughs> you know what I'm saying, I'm going to do it for these two sequences, and that's it. He didn't necessarily do that, like you said, there was a decent amount of times where he did it, um, and I understand the end goal, the end goal was to try, try to create something that we don't really notice that's happening, but we know visually it looks great. Unfortunately, again, it just didn't happen completely. But again, I love the ambition. So I, I think it maybe he should have sat on that a little longer and thought about that or what he was going to do there. But hey, man, it is what it is, I guess. Yeah, it's not perfect by any stretch. And I will be the first to admit that when it comes to movies and really any of my watchable experiences on TV, like a series or a film, I hate higher frame rates. I absolutely detest it when they introduce it on the televisions that were being distributed and sold, you know, a few years oh, ago. Disgusting. I hated it. I've always hated it. Anytime I would walk into somebody's like house or their apartment or whatever, and I would see that effect on their TV, I would I would say, you need to change that. Like, do not watch mm -hmm. your shit this way. It looks too, it looks like you said, it looks too crisp and too real. And for me, it takes away the magic of movies. Like the magic yeah. of movies being shot at 24 frames is that it looks real. Yes, it looks like it exists in the real world but there's still an element of magic there and when you have you know something that's moving at such a high frame rate i'm just like yo what is going on here this just doesn't it just doesn't work for me personally i know other people might feel differently and i think in watching avatar eventually i came around to it when the uh, when the underwater sequences happened i actually found that when they were when the 48 frames were utilized in the underwater sequences it worked incredibly well because that reminded me a lot of a National Geographic documentary. It felt like you were watching something that was like unfolding in real time. And that's where it felt the strongest to me. My big problem was he was switching back and forth so often, literally within mm -hmm. scenes. Like there would be like a shot in 24 yeah. and then the very next shot is in 48. And you're like, what the mm -hmm. fuck? Like, why? Why are you doing it so quickly and so decisively in that manner? And I do think that if he had picked some sequences to stick with it for an extended amount of time, exactly. it would have worked better. You and I, we see a mm -hmm. lot of movies in IMAX and a lot of big budget films are being filmed with IMAX cameras these days. And typically what they'll do is for the the, the huge set pieces, the huge ac action sequences, you'll notice the aspect ratio change to the IMAX traditional aspect ratio. And it'll pretty much stick that entire time. And and I think that that's a much a much less jarring transition as opposed to like literally within scenes, within seconds, you're going back and forth because that becomes, I think, just too much for the eye to handle. And, and it, mm -hmm. it makes it hard to just like accept it for what it is. I will say the second time out, I was less bothered by it because I knew I knew it was coming. But I think that mm -hmm. that first time, like 
as soon as that 20th Century Studios logo opened up, I was like, uh oh, wait a second. This is gonna <laughs> this is gonna feel weird, you know. And I think like those flying sequences, a little bit rough, didn't didn't work the greatest for me. But underwater, it's like, oh, I see why I see why mm-hmm. it's a thing here. So I think you just have to be a little bit more a little bit more judicious on how you, you know, try to sparse mm-hmm. it out over over the course of, you know, the next movies if he decides to use it. Now, of course, you know, as it pertains to Avatar, one of the big things about this franchise, I suppose, that people have said in the past 13 years up until the release of this movie is that, oh, you know, Avatar, the first one, biggest movie ever made, the most money ever, but doesn't actually have any cultural footprint. Nobody actually talks about Avatar. Nobody references it. Nobody makes memes about it. It's not really a part of the cultural zeitgeist, which I think mostly is true. I don't actually dispute that. I think that that's pretty, pretty well known, very apparent. Mm-hmm. Does that actually detract from the quality of the movie? That's a whole different conversation that I think people typically conflate. Now, James Cameron has said himself in the lead up to this movie that the reason the first Avatar didn't stick culturally is because it's still technically in the infancy of its franchise potential. You know, Star Wars has been around for almost 50 mm. years. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, that properly has been around for mm-hmm. almost 15 years, but Marvel movies have been coming out for much longer than that. These franchises have really had the room and opportunity to develop these passionate fan bases across the board avatar hasn't really had that opportunity now i think that also you know what one of the things that plays a part of it is it's just about the characters you know themselves like much of the conversation around that first avatar was more about the transport of nature of the visuals like how how impressive that was as opposed to the story and the characters and so that also plays a part to it do you think that you know sort of now with this movie out and 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 the fact that we know that more are assumingly coming down the pipeline do you think that that idea about Avatar not having a cultural footprint will actually hold hold this one back? Do you think it'll affect it in any negative way? Or do you think that, you know, perhaps that's just like people talking, you know, sort of making the situation a little bit bigger than what it really is and that people are going to gravitate to this regardless just because of how impressive of a feat it is from a visual standpoint? Man, it's really hard to say. Um, I I I know I'm about to be using that picture of spider. I know that because that little white boy with dreads is hilarious to me. I'm uh, I'm gonna be using that as a cultural footprint. But it's it's something I think that really only time will tell. Man, as avatars continue to come out, I have to give James Cameron kind of a a point. Like, yeah, a lot of those things do have those footprints because they had time to do so, even though. Avatar One, of course, has been like you said, thirteen years since it's 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 been made. When sequels come out, that's usually the moments in which I don't know people you start to stick with it a little bit more. People start to build up their collections in their homes, or I'm sure maybe next year some people are doing um, um, more Avatar costume. Shoot, I've seen some Avatar cosplay already. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Where people can at least get into it. I think what makes all of this so hard and hard to tell is that pushback that it's that it's getting there's there is all the love there is all the technical this movie is beautiful it's doing this on this achievement it's doing that on this other achievement but uh man as i'm scrolling through twitter i'm constantly seeing don't waste your money seeing avatar don't go see this movie avatar way of the water is canceled and that's what makes me go well, I don't know if it can have a cultural footprint. If people are constantly talking about it in this way, you know, I, it's it's weird. It's something I think we'll have to figure out the kind of legs I think the movie has. I think will definitely help me understand what what that looks like for the film. Um, but again, yeah, it's just it's, I'm just gonna have to see because there's so much 
divisiveness divisiveness going on. At the same time, I think that same divisiveness could be a reason why it stays around. You know, there's a lot of movies that like we we talk about on this podcast and shoot, even you you said some stuff sometimes. You're like, I like that everybody doesn't like this movie. Cause in my mind, that means it at least stuck with people. You know, then that usually means people are talking about it. I will never forget how the way people were talking about Eternals. That's the last one I remember you kind of saying it about that. You know what I mean? And I think that's also that's important. To me, that's a that's a footprint in itself. Like the worst rated Marvel movie ever. You know what I'm saying? Like this that's something that people are going to remember and talk about in the future. So I'm wondering if even the discourse with this film helps it in some ways or if it hurts it. I think it's really in some ways a, a coin toss. It depends on the people and depends on the way that this movie ends. You know, we'll talk about awards in a second, but I think that could help as well. Like if that becomes a thing during Academy Awards season, if people are all these first considerations comes out, shoot, if it wins, I think there are there are things that that can add to the conversation on which this movie is to have, again, that cultural footprint that that potentially exists with other franchises. I think really it just it, it time time will tell. It's, it's really hard for me to say. You know, what's interesting about what you just said there is that I have not seen any of that divisive conversation around this movie. And, and maybe mm-hmm. it's just perhaps with, you know, the stuff that I engage with, because I don't deny that it exists. Like, obviously, I think that certain demographics of people will have issues with this movie, but... I have seen nothing but positivity and praise around this movie. So I think it's just it just goes to show like, you know, sometimes mm-hmm. our windows into conversations around anything aren't the sole indicator of how people actually feel about something. There's many conversations mm. happening about this, right? And yeah. so I think one of the things about that first Avatar movie, as as technical technically impressive as it was, the reason it didn't necessarily stick around, I think I might have alluded to this earlier, is the fact that the characters in the story are a little too familiar and and, and mm-hmm. aren't strong enough to really make the case for like, wow, Jake Sully, what a hero, what a character. Nobody's really saying that because Jake Sully True. is like just a guy, yeah, really. Guy. Nothing that mm-hmm. special about him. This time around, I think that this movie, as gorgeous as it is, as as ridiculously just like, how did he how did he pull this off, you know, of of an element exists there. I think it's a little bit less about that and, and more about, well, can he actually get us as an audience invested into this family? Can mm-hmm. we actually become invested in the Sully clan that exists within this story? Because if you're making three or four more of these, like at a certain point, visual effects are not going to be enough. Right. And I think that they will carry you further and far, as we've seen even with other blockbusters. Sometimes the spectacle has been enough because I've seen a lot of a lot of shit where I'm like, how did that make so much money? But. I do think that people have a line and they certainly expect to become invested into the story that you're telling with with characters that we can actually become invested in and actually really root for or hope, you know, survive or whatever the case may be. And so I think I think that that's going to kind of be the the thing, the thing that really is going to make or break whether this franchise has a really long future and actually stays a part of the conversation for the next 10 or so years or if it's mm-hmm. just going to be these movies that we get, they come out, they make good some good amounts of money but then we just kind of they kind of just vanish right after that i think that that's gonna that's gonna be really important to the to the whole you know sort of longevity and and what that looks like for this franchise and you know cameron also he integrates these these ecological messages and stories i I certainly don't think the guy is the most well equipped to be talking about cultural sensitivities even though Mm -hmm. he has been involved with indigenous populations and indigenous cultures and he's very aware of the modern sort of representation of what that looks like 
But also, I think uh, we have to certainly we have to level set and think about like, well, what what's really what's really the goal and the the objective here? It's to tell it's to tell a universal story, and sometimes that's at the sake of sacrificing certain things that might be true and 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 doing something that's a little bit more untrue just so that more people can relate to it i'm not saying that that's good or bad by any means but i think it's pretty clear and evident that that's that's the case here that's what he's doing for sure another piece of this is the box office which we talk about with this movie so much because of the fact that the first one is the highest grossing movie of all time currently it's sitting at a little bit over 2.9 billion dollars Mm. That's really due to the re-release earlier this year. I think it picked up like another 60 or 70 million just from the re-release. 13 years later, people still want to go back and watch the first Avatar. So it's getting very close to 3 billion. I, I think with one more re-release, maybe, I don't know, maybe now or maybe <laughs> in a couple of months, you know, it's like a double feature. It's going to hit 3 billion, the first film to ever do so. Many people have been wondering, can Avatar The Way of Water achieve the same success? It's been 13 years, that cultural footprint conversation that we just had, do people really care? We also know that the landscape is much more crowded now. It's not what it mm-hmm. what it was in 2009. Now you have 15 Marvel movies that come out every year to contend with. You know, there's just significantly more competition. Every studio has multiple franchises that are mm-hmm. sort of jockeying for position, trying to be number one every year at the box office. We actually do have some raw numbers after this past weekend. Domestically, Avatar The Way of Water made $134 million. Internationally, it picked up an additional $301 million for a global overall total of $435 million. That is the third biggest global opening of this year. It's only behind Spider-Man No Way Home, which had a ridiculous $600 million global opening. Technically, it came out at the end of 2021, but a lot of that box office spilled over into 2022. And then Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, which came out earlier this spring, had $442 million globally. So it's impressive nonetheless. But it is below the initial box office tracking that they had. I think that this initial tracking for Avatar The Way of Water was around $175 million to $195 million. And so some analysts have come out to say, like, yes, it fell below, although it still did pick up one of the biggest domestic openings of the, of, of the year. It fell below tracking primarily because this is what you know some analysts are attributing to many people could not see this movie in their preferred format they couldn't see it in Mm. imax 3d they couldn't see it in dolby those premium large screen formats that are available that you know we just talked about like this is how you should see it a lot of people just didn't have access to those because those tickets sold out we also know that this movie is significantly longer that means less show times throughout the day you probably Mm -hmm. can show this max four times in one day in a single auditorium just because of how long it is so i think that there's a lot of factors here we also Mm -hmm. know that the first movie didn't have a huge opening it had like a 77 million dollar opening which is not in the top 50 you know but it went on to become the highest grossing movie ever it had incredibly long legs what do these numbers mean to you what do you think that the ultimate sort of box office result of avatar the way of water looks like does it go on to be one of the biggest movies ever maybe enter the top five and makes two billion or does it kind of have a huge opening weekend now and maybe stall out a little bit earlier? Because we've seen that in other movies like Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Huge opening. I think the second mm-hmm. biggest domestically of the year. But it's kind of just like stopped at 777, something like that. Same thing with Doctor Strange. It just kind of stopped after a few weeks. What do you think are sort of the box office fortunes for this movie? Man, I think some of it will absolutely um, have a decent legs, man. We're moving into the holiday season right now. I know a lot of families who go to the movies around the holidays, man, whether it's New Year's Eve, whether it's Christmas Eve, whether it's Christmas. Um, and, and I think this weekend, next weekend, 
I absolutely think it's going to do some continue to do a lot of the same numbers that we've seen this week, just because some of those theaters open up that you said some of those like those that first weekend, to be honest, it's a lot of the movie heads. It's a lot of us, you know what I mean? That's in those theaters seeing seeing a film like Avatar. It's a lot of the the people who did get lucky enough, I think, or who was on top of it enough to get tickets at the time. This next week is family time. It's time for people to get in there together. I think there's going to be a big rush at the movie theaters. I think AMCs and all these Cinemarks, everybody across the country, it's, it's going to be busy in there because of this film in particular. It absolutely is. Again, there's a reason all these other films were staying away from this movie. There's a reason why a lot of the movies we talked about was very end of November, very beginning, beginning of December. Everybody cleared the way for Avatar Way of Water. I have a feeling that the the, the legs in this film, are, it's, it's going to be a lengthy one. Not only that, but I'm thinking about what's happening after this movie comes out. There's only so many things you know that can that can really kick out avatar if avatar really is still pulling in numbers after a couple weeks um and this this movie will continue to be on screens i think for an extended period of time that being said i think it's going to do amazing three bill absolutely not i don't think it's going to get the three bill uh there's just something about the spectacle and the word of mouth of that first avatar that i don't think people are going to try to recreate now that a lot of people have seen the first avatar now that people have seen that first initial achievement I, I honestly don't think people are going to in in their mind they're not they're not going to really be able to 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 convince themselves to to go see the, the film again. I know a lot of people who did go see that first Avatar for word of mouth and was like, "Eh, I'm good." Or a lot of people who absolutely did see the first Avatar in, in theaters and they're like, "Eh, I'm I'm sorry, I'm not interested in this one." Or they are listening to the people that I told you about. I'm seeing tweets like, "Don't go see the movie." I'm like, "Damn, I didn't see that." The first time I didn't see that back in 2010 <laughs> when Avatar came out, I absolutely didn't, and so I, I don't think we, we we're seeing an Avatar one deal. But I'm betting I'm betting on a Billy at least. You know what I'm saying? I'm I'm not gonna undercut the film, you know, and say people aren't gonna go see the film. I think it's I think it will still end up in in one of the most watched uh, 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 shoot domestic shoot not domestic but just box office sensations of all time I think it will end up doing that just not quite reaching what the first one did but I do see people absolutely raving about the film and excited to go see it so I think I think it has potential to hit the the Billy I think it has potential to go over but I, I don't think it'll hit that that first movie so the real question is three is out of the question three but no film has done that yet one billion I think it's a shoe in just based off of this opening yep. weekend can it do two billion? Do you think it can get there? That's that's. I feel like that that's, that's kind of the mark. Like the first mm -hmm. one yeah, on the, the initial run did like two point seven. I still don't think it's going to catch that. But I feel like I feel like people are thinking like, well, this has potential to get there. Only five films have done it. Cameron has yep. two of them with Titanic and the first Avatar, and then the other three are occupied by Marvel movies, or excuse me, two by Marvel movies and then the Star Wars movie. But can it get can it get that far? Can it get to two? Only five Ooh. films that you know. I, I will point out. There is virtually no competition for this movie until Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. That's the important part. That's there is the like little, there are movies coming out, obviously, but nothing that can actually compete with this and remove mm -hmm. it from those premium large format screens. This exactly. is going to occupy IMAX and Dolby auditoriums for like seven, eight weeks. You know, this this could be like one of the first films ever to be number one at the box office for a really black Panther. In fact, just did it five weeks consecutively mm -hmm. number one at the box office. It's only the third Marvel movie to achieve that, even though it hasn't made more money than the first movie. I think mm -hmm. that that's like an impressive run. Can it even hit two bill at this point in your mind? Ooh. 
Man, I have to see projections after like in like mid February or not mid February, but like mid January. Like, give me after the tell me what happens after New Year's and Christmas. And if it's like, I don't know, something ridiculous. If it's something ridiculous, I I'll say yes, it can hit the two bill. Um, one thing I will say, add on, you know, James Cameron in a second would be like, I need to re-release this. <laughs> Thousand percent in order to make money. He literally did that in 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 just to get the end game crown. Like he was like, ah, I'm gonna release this movie just so I need to be the king of this. And so I absolutely see a world where maybe it doesn't hit two billion off rip. Maybe it hits one point eight. It hits one point seven. I can see him going. All right, the people have been waiting a couple years, or right before three comes out. We know we technically know Avatar three is pretty close around the corner. Right? Yeah, I can see him saying. Mm, couple months out just like he did the first one just just like we just went to go see the first one i can see him re-releasing this film and definitely hitting two bill that way as well so i think i think for sure it's possible for him to hit two bill i think again knowing him the way he likes to re-release i'm gonna go say go ahead and say yes i don't know if this first run will hit it but i definitely believe at, at some point it'll hit the two billion mark i think that's a good distinction we know that he plays the long game and even though it might not hit it in this initial run it's very likely it could do that depending on how far it goes right now it's also important to note that unlike many blockbuster movies that have come out in the past couple of years post-covid this will get a china release and china packs up mm, that's huge huge huge, huge mm. box office numbers it's the second biggest theatrical movie going market in the world folks and i think that's the reason a lot of Marvel movies haven't gotten quite to the places that they used to is because none of their movies post-COVID have been released in China. Mm-hmm. And I think that if some of those movies had been, if you had Thor Love and Thunder, Black Panther Wakanda Forever, Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, I think those are surefire billion dollar films with the China release, but they haven't had yeah. that. This one is coming out in China. And so I think initial run, yep. I'm thinking at least like one six, one seven. Yep. And exactly. then and then, you know, potentially like you said, with the re release, maybe in a year, maybe in a couple of years when three comes out, it'll get there eventually because it has those long legs. But the next like eight weeks, seven, eight weeks are just like wide open. So who knows? I mean, it could just it could again take the world by storm. Nobody saw the movie that came out with a seventy seven million dollar opening going mm, as far as it did. Exactly. So imagine what this can possibly do if people decide to go back over and over again. Now, awards are another conversation entirely because you can't necessarily judge the merits of a movie based on the box office in terms of its award consideration. But that first movie also had a big presence at the Academy Awards in the year that it came out. It was nominated for like nine Academy Awards at the 2010 ceremony. It ended Mm. up picking up three. I believe it was Best Visual Effects, Best Art Direction, things of that nature. A lot of the technical awards, but it did, in fact, get nominated for Best Director and Best Picture. Some huge, huge recognition, though it didn't win. How far do you think Avatar The Way of Water goes? Do you think it gets Academy Award nominations? I think historically we don't typically see a lot of sequels sort of return mm. to the Academy. They'll typically like honor and, and and definitely like pay acknowledgement to those first ones out the gate. But I don't know. This feels different just because it has been so long, you know, since that mm. first movie. And there are new technical achievements here. What types of award chances do you sort of foresee it in the next you know few months, especially as we lead up to the Oscars? Man. What a weird place for Avatar, I think, to be in. Um, you know, a lot of times I, I will always give Oscars kind of credit because I, I sometimes I feel like they do try to give people new awards, right? So, you know, sometimes they do do like the makeup call. They do do the – it got so much praise that first time around, even though it's funny because it's, cause it lost. <laughs> but it's it's – I don't know. It's one of those things where I feel like it's been there, done that in so many ways – that it's hard for me to say 
what the Academy deems worthy when it comes to this film. You know, I think technically you got to you got to talk about it. Yeah. I mean, it's it's almost a crime to me <laughs> if you don't talk about this, this. This this movie is nuts, technically. Right. Like it's nuts. 13 years in the making, all the things that he set out to do, the 3Dness of it, the cameras he shot with, the underwater shit that he was doing, the seat. Some of the shots that I've seen of just a close up of somebody's face, some of that was some of that shit was my favorite things. It's unparalleled. I was like, I was like, how is this shot of a face like one of my favorite shots in the whole movie? It just is. Like that's how fucking good it looks to me. Um, and in that being said, man, I'm like, you again, you gotta talk about it. Like at least a nod. Like some of these things, I don't even think necessarily you have to win because most of us just get it you know sometimes it's like an achievement that it's like you should get an award for that because you haven't really got that recognition you know kind of type thing this doesn't necessarily 100 percent feel like that like i'm not going to go into this being like james cameron definitely should get best director i'm not going to say that per se either but it definitely feels like we should be talking about it i think the academy awards even as a couple nominations is a great place to do that again it doesn't have to win but if if you're talking about the one of some of the greatest achievements in the world, nominated, and I think I think some of stuff like best cinematography, best visual set, effects, visual production effects, design, set, production design, yeah. shoot costumes, you know what I'm like. A lot of that stuff I think should absolutely be talked about and and be on uh, on the radar for it. even best director too. Sure, put it on there. He doesn't have to win. But again, for the film he set out to make, all of that stuff only comes with the director of James Cameron. And so I think some of that stuff should absolutely get a nod. I think in terms of nominations, it's a shoe-in for a lot of those categories. What becomes a bit more complicated to me is the idea that in a lot of those technical categories, it will go head-to-head with Top Gun Maverick, Mm -hmm. which I don't know. That's tough. If, if If we're being honest about it, Top Gun Maverick is also a sequel. You know, it's it's a sequel that's thirty six mm-hmm. years in the making as opposed to thirteen, even so uh, yeah. even older. But you know, there there was a phenomenon that happened earlier this year with Top Gun Maverick that you know we 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 couldn't anticipate and and foresee. Honestly, I used to think that Top Gun Maverick would just walk away with all of those, and I think it's it's still likely that it, that mm-hmm. it could because of just like what it was able to achieve for movie going and how how everybody pretty much rallied around that movie, and and it's so beloved now, but. I think that there's a, a big chance that these categories, these more technical below the line things, we might see some split results. You know, we might see Avatar The Way of Water pick up this best visual effects because I just I don't know if I can yeah. rationalize in my mind that movie yeah. not winning that award. It, it's mm. truly unreal what they were able to do. No pun intended with the photorealism nature of it. Just the fact that mm. it just looks for a while in that movie. I was sitting there like I think once we got to like the hour 45 minute mark. I forgot yeah. I was watching digital stuff. Like I just thought I was there. I'm <laughs> like, is. this isn't digital. This is like they're there, you know. And so it's it's kind of it's kind of crazy to think about it in that perspective. But Top Gun Maverick was just like it was huge, and it still has momentum, and it's still mm-hmm. it's still a massive campaign that's going on right now. And I think you know Tom Cruise and his company are about to pick up the pace and really campaign for a lot of this stuff. So it'll be interesting. Last question: We know that they're making more of these. Avatar three is apparently already filmed. And yep. even like the beginnings of Avatar 4 have been filmed. But James Cameron yep. has been a little bit more reserved. He said like, hey, let's wait and see the success of this movie, whether or not people gravitate towards it. Avatar 3 is pretty much a shoe in It'll come out in two years. So we won't have to wait another, you know, 25 years to see that film. But 4 and 5, those those are the more uncertain ones. Those are the, those are the, the films that haven't been totally shot. 
We don't even know if James Cameron's going to direct those movies. He said, like, you know, I might hand it off. I might just do three and kind of step away and be a producer and let somebody mm-hmm. else take a crack at it. How far do you think this goes? Do you think, like, five movies is absolutely going to happen? Or do you think, like, well, you know, we'll see how this one performs. Three, a lot of that is going to depend on if that movie's even good or not. And then, you know, yeah. Avatar just might be a trilogy as opposed to this quintilogy i guess that's like the technical term i don't really know but i'm just kind of curious as to what it, whether you think you know we'll actually get these these other sequels or if we might just kind of you know end it after the next one you know i think it's one thing to be invested in the story of a franchise but i think it's another thing to be invested in the spectacle of a franchise man every time i mean this is the second time now avatar has come out and we're like we got to go see it i'm pretty sure james cameron is doing something new i the thing I will also say about this is James Cameron's always going to try some new shit every movie now. Like Avatar is literally his sandbox of like, let's try this new thing on camera. You know, um, um, it's funny. Like, I, I love that Jordan Peele also does the same thing. You know, he's like, let's do something that's never been done before. He did it with Nope. And James Cameron is that's literally what he does. He's like, let's do some new shit. So I know me personally, I'm like, if you're doing something new. Let's shit. Let's try it out. What if the next film he he heard this podcast is like, well, I'm going to shoot the whole film in 48 frames per second. You know what I'm saying? Like, OK, like, OK, let's let's do that then. And let's see what that looks like. Or let's see um, um, how that translates. I, I, I can see myself being like on the fifth movie, like, damn, I know we've been here a lot of movies, but you're doing something new, James Cameron. Like, I'm still here for it kind of type thing. So I think it really just depends. I, I, I love that he's waiting. I love that he's trying to gauge the interest of the people. Because I think that's important. Part of me is like, well, absolutely a trilogy's happened. I need to know. Again, there's stuff in this movie. I'm like, you didn't talk about this. Why didn't you talk about this thing? I want to see what happens now in the next film. Um, but I think it it, it, it really uh, it's so hard to tell. Because five movies is a lot for anybody. It's a lot, man. I mean, there's only so many fives of anything. Shit, Rocky, Star Wars. Like, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> there's not a lot of fives in any franchise but i think if, it, if if a franchise can do it it's the us being addicted to the spectacle of avatar i think that can actually get us there if if we continue to be enthralled by every new one right if three comes out and we're like man that was better than the first two you know what i'm saying maybe the story's actually good and the dialogue is good in three who knows you know what i'm saying he has a chance in some ways to rectify some of that stuff of course we already know a lot of it is shot but editing and all of these things are possible Shoot, we know there's like nine hours of Avatar 3. What? Excuse me? There's nine hours of what? It's ridiculous. But I think it's 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 I think there's good movies to be had. And I think for that reason, I think a five is absolutely possible if we continue on the path that we're on now. Yeah, I think it was actually really smart for them to shoot two and three simultaneously so that we just mm-hmm. don't have to wait as long to get that third one out. I think to go for a trilogy is it makes total sense after what they did with the first one. So I'm not at all mad at that. Now, if we want and have an appetite for a four and five is an entirely different conversation, as you've already pointed out. For me, after watching this movie specifically, and again, no spoilers, but I think when looking at the story, I need this to be able to evolve past what it is currently. I think that you can get three movies out of that. I can see a a, a three-arc trilogy with that. But I do think that at some point, you're going to have to get really creative with who the antagonists and the villains are, what you're actually putting this family through. I would love to maybe see a scenario, perhaps... I got to be careful how I say this, but perhaps we get some new villains that can take our focus off of current villains. Mm-hmm. And then we go back to some of those original villains, you know, a circle back. I've seen I've seen that be successfully done elsewhere where you can sort of take away the focus on what we initially were drawn into 
kind of distract us for a while with these new characters, these new inventions, whatever the case may be. And then we can kind of go back to what originally brought us to the dance to begin with. But you have to really evolve the story to to continue to get audiences invested because, yes, a 13 year wait also builds up a lot of anticipation. Many people are going to see this just because they're curious, like. Well, can he do it again? Can he succeed at what was the most successful movie of all time? You're not going to really have that story to tell. You're not going to have that narrative for the third one or the fourth one or the fifth one. So what is going to be that draw? What is going to be the dynamic that gets people to say like, oh, my God, we have to go see it. The only other thing that I can imagine just based off of our natural inhibitions is the fact that and this might be silly to say because it is like a huge movie, but. This really feels like counter-programming to like all the shit we already get. It feels like counter-programming to the massive amount of superhero stuff that we see all the time. It feels just different than that. Like I want to see big mm-hmm. spectacle, but I want to see something different. I don't always want to see like two people punching each other. And so exactly. I think movies like this and Top Gun Maverick offer that. They offer you that big exhilarating experience that you pay a lot of money for, but you don't have to watch people in capes and cows all day long. It's just different. And again, that's not to disparage stuff that we get out of the superhero genre, but difference is good. Variety is a good thing, and I think it's healthy for the overall overall movie-going experience. But we will certainly have to see. We talked about that movie a lot for about an hour here, but those are our thoughts on Avatar The Way of Water. If you've checked out this movie, we'd love to hear your thoughts. We'd love to know what you felt about this entire theatrical movie-going experience. So definitely hit us up and let us know what you think. And with that being said, we're going to transition to our next half of the podcast and just talk about all the stuff that we have not had a chance or an opportunity to cover on the podcast this year. Folks, we have reviewed a shit ton of movies, a lot of TV shows, and even sprinkled in some video games and anime every so often. But even with the amount of time that we've spent reviewing things on a weekly basis, we still miss some things. We still have some gaps. We still, you know, sort of have some blind spots. But now is our chance to rectify that, to catch up on many of the things that we have both been watching on our own time that we just haven't had the opportunity to talk about. So we're going to do that here. We're just going to go back and forth. Some of these things we've both watched and have been keeping up with. Some of these things, you know, Des has seen that I haven't seen, vice versa. So we're just going to kind of share our thoughts quickly and just kind of run through these things and just, you know, let people know whether or not to check them out or maybe even get additional thoughts from our fans and listeners who might have checked out these things. So with that being said, man, I'll just kick it off to you and we, again, can just sort of go back and forth here. What's what's first on your list that you want to talk about? Man, Disenchanted, um, the sequel, I, th- I think, to the 2000, and I actually don't remember the last one that went Enchanted. Oh, seven. Oh, seven. 15 God. years, yeah. So another, we're doing it again. A lot, of, <laughs> <laughs> a lot of 15 plus year sequels coming out here. Um, Man, Disenchanted, man, uh, is, is uh, again, it's a... It's a sequel to a very old um, Disney film. The first Enchanted did tremendous in theaters. It's people talked about it a lot. It's low key a classic. I think among the people, not necessarily like, like a big Disney spectacle, right? People aren't talking about Enchanted like they're talking about freaking Little Mermaid about to come out. But it was pretty big when it came out as kind of one of those off Disney movies that people love. Disenchanted, the sequel, just came out Disney Plus uh, about a month or so ago. And unfortunately, it just doesn't hold up. The magic isn't there as much as the first one was there is a good story i think in here within disenchanted but it doesn't really go there something about the magic something about the singing of the first something about the fish out of water story that no longer exists in this movie and it just kind of falls short amy adams is still tremendous my rudolph is in this movie which she is is great um yvette nicole brown there's like a the, the cast is amazing but it's something man is sometimes you can't recapture the magic and this movie, um, unfortunately, doesn't do it. There is a good story here about motherhood and wanting things to be perfect and how you want it. 
but it just doesn't land. I think the ways in which it wants to land, it doesn't have that that je ne sais quoi, man. And, and, and for that is unfortunate. But um, if you like the the previous Enchanted, if you do want to sit through this movie, I mean, I guess it's okay. It's shot great. I would say that looks beautiful. The CGI is really good for what it has to be. But as a, as a story, it, it definitely falls short. It's really disappointing. I still have to check out both of these movies. I never saw the first Enchanted movie, and so I still want to watch that and then, you know, experience this movie. But I, I, I find it interesting that they didn't release this in theaters, considering that first mm-hmm. one was a big success. But perhaps the quality of it, to your point, they saw this they and knew. were like, yeah, maybe maybe <laughs> we shouldn't, you know, spend a lot of money to put this out in theaters. Maybe it's just best to, you know, put on Disney Plus, see how people react to it, and then go from there. So unfortunate to hear that, but definitely still intend to check it out. First on my list is Cobra Kai, which is a show I've been meaning to get to for a long time now and finally just had some time to get into it and watch it. I rewatched the original Karate Kid trilogy with Ralph Macchio to prepare myself to watch this show. And I just have to say, this is one of my favorite things that I've watched all year. It is so much fun. I watched all five seasons and season five actually debuted earlier this year, I think back in the fall in September. Mm-hmm. And if you don't know the premise of Cobra Kai, it's actually about Johnny, who was in the original film. Johnny was like mm-hmm. the main antagonist to um, to, to Ralph Macchio's um, character in that first movie. They fought at the end, Daniel. Daniel and, jo- and Johnny fought in the, in the main karate tournament. And Daniel ended up winning. And so we saw a lot of the Karate Kid trilogy from Daniel's point of view. This show is really taking the point of view of Johnny and, and where, where he's been over the past you know 30 or so years, what his life has really turned into, and his decision ultimately to reopen the Cobra Kai karate dojo that he was a part of in that in that original trilogy and then it's just off from there what's interesting about Cobra Kai is that it initially debuted on YouTube Red the first two seasons were this Mm, digital series on YouTube Red but then Netflix I think they saw how popular it was and they picked it up for the third season and you can tell by the time you get to the third season you can see the budget increase you can see more characters you can see better choreography better costumes it's like Mm -hmm. oh yeah the Netflix budget is behind it but this show is an absolute treat it's a half hour comedy drama and it's so funny it's so heartfelt i love the characters i love the choreography and just like how much everybody is fighting all the time like admittedly there's a lot that's really corny about it but it's a good corny it's the corny that you actually love because they know that they're leaning into what makes this you know a really heartfelt franchise Mm -hmm. because even if you go back and watch those original karate kid movies those have a little bit of an element of campiness and coordinateness to oh, them too, but sure. you love them. You know, you love the nostalgia mm-hmm. of them. You love how they make you feel. And I just love how they recontextualize everything from those first three movies. Because again, with Daniel, played by Ralph Macchio, being the protagonist in those movies, now mm-hmm. we kind of flip the perspective and you get to see things from a different side of things. And so when you go back and watch those initial movies, I think you'll see it different. But this is just an absolute joy and a treat to watch. Yes, there is certainly a huge level of melodrama here. There are many situations where you just like look at it and like that would never happen. Like these 50 teenagers, a part of these karate dojos are just like getting into random fights at a, at a community pool or at a movie theater drive in. Like this wouldn't really happen in this way, but there's just so much to love about it. And I just really, really enjoyed this show. And also the villains are so good here. And they bring back when I say literally everybody from those first three movies. They bring back everybody, everybody. Mm. If you're alive, you find a place in this new show. And I just love that. The callbacks. And even if you haven't seen the first three movies, the show, it makes it easy to catch up because there's a lot of flashbacks. They use a lot of archival footage from those first movies. So you get caught up really easily, even if you weren't like a huge fan of those initial three Karate Kids movies. But man, this is this is such a treat. I can't wait until the next season. Like I'm 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 kind of fiending for it because the way that season five ended it it could 
it could end up season six is like the last one. They've they've gotten mm-hmm. to the place where it feel like that that can really round out the story. But I also wouldn't be surprised if they just like kept this going for like another three, four, five years because they keep introducing new mm-hmm. characters that are interesting that you attach yourself to that become really important pieces of the, of the story. So I had a blast watching it. I really loved it. Man, I've I've only heard good things about Cobra Kai, man, and so I really can't wait to get into it. I think original Karate Kid what eighty four or something like that. Yeah, honestly, I'm one of those people that actually likes twenty ten Karate Kid. That was like I actually oh, really Smith? rock with that movie. The Jaden Smith, yeah, yeah, actually really rock with that movie. But man, eighty four, what a time! It's like Nightmare on Elm Street and Gremlins and it was a great Karate year. Kid was there. Terminator, it, it was Ghostbusters. Eighty four is an insane year for movies when you yeah. think about it. Um, Absolutely. So that, I really can't wait to get into Cobra Kai. I think it's definitely um, up my alley, man. I got a chance to check out another show on Netflix. And I, I have to start by saying, if you don't know where I'm going here, this is clearly the year of Jenna Ortega. I don't know if we've noticed. I don't know if anybody else has picked up on it. <laughs> but this woman, like if I had to give one actress who won the year, it's Jenna Ortega. Between Scream, X, The Fallout, and now Wednesday, she was firing on absolutely and completely all cylinders this year, man. Um, and, and, and I'm here to talk about Wednesday, Netflix. It's fun as hell, to be honest. In a lot of ways, we, we've we never gotten like a Harry Potter TV show. And I don't think it'll ever match up to the quality of that. But the ideas of this show definitely feel like that. It feels like a, a Hogwarts TV show. And I really love that about it. Jenna Ortega as Wednesday is really the reason to watch the show. It's not the most perfect story in the world it's not the most perfect circumstances happening in the show but it really this girl here is carrying everything and so much as this character really you hit next episode because you're like damn i want to see jenna ortega do that again (laughs) and you do um and that's what that's what makes it a good time man it's 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 it was a fine watch for me um probably not one of my favorite shows of the year but in terms of again having fun watching something everything doesn't have to be the most critical (laughs) you know what i'm saying like thing that you're watching on the screen i i absolutely had a good time the cast is nuts i got christina uh richie is in it gwendolyn christie is in it it's just really fun man and i I had a good time all the all the quirks and characters that mean there's werewolves here and other kind of creatures and of course you got thing freaking a hand just be out here acting and it does a great job like thing is so good uh uh, at what he does so it's it's just really cool to have a show like this that i can have fun with like i said it feels like a harry potter show i never really got and jenna ortega's in it killing it um so yeah man it's it's a really fun watch shout out to her agent because they are working hard but this uh this is absolutely resonating it's already become like the second most watched English language show on Netflix, or maybe the third most watched—I don't know—but it's it's breaking all sorts of records. It's only behind Ooh. or in the conversation with Stranger Things and Dahmer, which also came out earlier this year. So it's clearly a sensation. Definitely something I intend to check out. Um, next on my list is Moon Age Daydream, which is a documentary about David Bowie that came out earlier this year. I actually saw this in IMAX. It had a limited IMAX release. And this is my favorite documentary that I've watched this year. I'm going to talk about quite a few documentaries on this list, but Mm -hmm. this was an absolutely mesmerizing, transporting experience. It was written and directed by Brett Morgan. And it's also the first film that's been officially authorized by the Bowie estate. If you don't know, David Bowie did pass away a few years ago, but this is the first film that they've officially authorized. There have been a ton of documentaries about David Bowie, a ton of books, a, a lot of ancillary material written about him. He is one of the most known pop cultural icons, especially in the world of music that we've ever gotten, and definitely enigma to say the least. But 
when you go and watch this movie, man, it, it just takes you to a different place because it's not a traditional documentary. There are no talking heads. It you it uses nothing but unreleased archival footage. Even some unreleased songs are included in here from from the personal archives of David Bowie. Some personal concert footage that's never been released. And mm. when I saw this in IMAX, it was just it was so different and so exhilarating. It felt like. I was actively at a David Bowie concert because there are some performances featured here. And like there were times where the sound was so thunderous that I was I felt like I was in the middle of Madison Square Garden watching this guy perform, which is that's as close as I ever get because I never saw David Bowie in his prime. And I, I enjoy quite a lot of his music. And I think anybody, if you're a fan of David Bowie, this is this is absolutely something to watch. It was produced also by HBO Documentary Films. It's not on Max just yet, but I think it probably will be in the next few months. But it is currently mm -hmm. available on VOD in case you want to rent or purchase it. I think that this is absolutely worth the watch. I don't know how far to go in terms of maybe awards chances. It might get it might be it, it might get a best documentary nomination at the Academy Awards. Mm -hmm. I do think it's that good because um, this was really just uh, unlike anything else I've ever seen. It felt like a true musical fantasy experience all wrapped up into one and presented as a documentary which i just couldn't have predicted it was it was a really unique thing to, to sort of witness and, and, and see yeah I, I also again another thing i can't wait to check out not only because the praises you sing but david bowie was a, a colorful dude <laughs> and so i just and when i'm thinking about what it might look like i just think of you know i, I think all the the you know the color that he always brought to his work, man. He always had some visuals on him. David Bowie always had some visuals on him, man. Where there was a picture, whether it was him with the, I think it's like the, the colorful lightning bolt thing going yep. on. I don't know, man. David Bowie was just a, a, a really, really cool dude. He was like a, a hairband guy for a while, kind of feeling it. It, it was just really, uh, really dope. So I, I also can't wait um, to watch it and see what that document documentary presents, man. Yeah, he evolved a lot, you know, and you see you see that evolution, you know, his changing in personalities, his style, his fashion, his musical, you know, sensibilities, and just also his personal interests too, which are which are touched mm. upon here. The fact that, you know, he had a lot of other interests like artwork and things outside of music that he was that he was really interested in. So I just love that they, they really touched on all that stuff. Um next on both of our lists is something that we both have been actively watching, and that's Love, Death and Robots on Netflix, mm -hmm. which has been a anthology series on Netflix for a few years now. Um it actually originally premiered in 2019 this series this anthology series was created by tim miller and it's also produced by david fincher you know two very very notable filmmakers especially fincher but it's For really sure. just you know sort of looking at comedy horror science fiction fantasy and just creating this amalgamation of all these different stories that are somewhat tied together by these concepts of love, death, and or robots. You know, and some mm -hmm. some of the shorts have all three. Some of them are just vastly telling the stories about robots or maybe about love and romance or maybe just about death and the apocalypse in the future and just, you know, mm -hmm. sort of these post-apocalyptic societies that we might live in. Um, but I know you've been watching it for quite a while. I caught up with all of it this year alone to just really, you yeah. know, sort of become interested into it. But what, what are your thoughts on love, death, and robots? You know, what are some of the standouts for you in terms of the short stories that they've told and just kind of the place that it has on Netflix as this anthology series. Man, I, I love the concept so much, man, as somebody who not only loves animation, but is an advocate for it, right? I'm still one of those people who are trying to get, I think, us as grown, you know, people and millennials to not see it as a, a, a childish format. And Love, Death, and Robots, in some ways, that's kind of the purpose. It's like, look, y'all, we can tell mature stories. Of course, they're, they're short, but we could tell we could tell mature stories in the form of animation and literally when it says death i mean love death and robots there's a lot of there's a lot of people dying you know in these shorts um and not only that but a lot of them 
a lot of these 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 shorts present uh really cool ideas right or they they present even so like lessons or they always present some form of social commentary on the way the world is now that makes it um an enjoyable watch like every anthology that we talk about on this podcast they all don't work right some of them are like and eh, that was okay that was fine that could have been longer that could have been shorter why does i might not like the animation of one right i might like the animation of another one a lot like some sometimes you watch these and you're like, you're sure this isn't a full movie I'm about to watch. It's like, nope, it's over. It's been 15 minutes. I'm like, damn, where's the rest of it? It looks so good, you know, kind of type thing. And so for that, I think Love, Death and Robots will always have a special place on Netflix. I will also say Netflix is doing a good job of that. They're like trying to create these little pockets of anthology series that people can keep coming back to. We already have that with Black Mirror. We're doing that with Love, Death, and Robots. They just added Cabinet of Curiosities. And I'm, I'm sure season two of Cabinet of Curiosities is going to come back at some point with some more horror shorts. So I love that Netflix is doing this. And so um, um, and watching Love, Death, and Robots, man, uh, you talk about standouts. I, in terms of the this new season, I think I'm going to stay with season three, man. I don't even know if it was season three. Let me see. There's, there's one. It's actually season two. <laughs> Because it's the, it's the Christmas season. It's called All Through the House. I don't know why oh, I think it's yeah. maybe the funniest short I've ever seen in Love, Death, and Robots. But it's I I was just rolling. There's something about it that's just like I didn't expect it. I'm sure nobody else expected it. It's just funny. Um, so definitely that one. Um, in terms of of of, of uh, old shorts, there's man, I, I really forgot the names of, of a lot of these, man. But it's the it's it's um, the one with. I forget it. Just watch. Well, there it. was there was one that I did not expect to see from season two with Michael B. Jordan, where it was like, yeah, I forgot. Oh about yeah, that. it looks just like mm-hmm. him. Like he, Michael B. Jordan is doing like photo capture. You know, it's a, like a photorealistic performance. And I watched it. And I was like, oh, I didn't anticipate this, but you know, I, I think that speaks to like a lot of the talent that that comes on to this show. Mm-hmm. They're getting some like huge names. Like Rosario Dawson was in one. Seth Green was in one. Like they actually have yeah. like a lot of people participate in these in these shorts because of just like again that filmmaking talent behind it and and i think one of the one of the real hallmarks about this series is the fact that like they are working with animation studios from all over the world like it's a truly international endeavor that they're taking Mm -hmm. that they're you know sort of embarking on here like there's there's studios from france and spain and russia and hungary like i'm like this is this is like the best talent coming from everywhere you know and so i just love that it has a lot of that international flair that's associated with it as well some really talented people a part of this show yeah no it's it's really crazy to think about that because as you're watching it again because it's an anthology or you see so many shorts of you know, face capture of actresses and actors that you don't know. You, you get so surprised when you do somebody you do know. You're like, oh, shoot, you decided to come do this project over here? I'm really, that's really dope, but I'm really proud of that. So, again, shout out to Netflix for just creating a brand now with some of these anthologies. But shout out to Love, Death, and Robots and David Fincher and, you know, all these people for actually uh, uh, really putting this on the table. I know a, a decent amount of people who are into animation that watch it, and we all, you know, we all have our favorite shorts, and we all appreciate it. So it's dope. Yeah, no doubt about it. Um, next on our list is another show we've both been watching, one of the most, I think, well-known sensations on TV, and that's Abbott Elementary. We haven't had a chance to talk about season two so far on the podcast, but season two was coming fresh off of the heels of those big Emmy wins that happened earlier this fall with Cheryl Lee Ralph, Quinta Brunson. Like They picked up a lot, of, a lot of trophies at the Emmy Awards, and so people were eagerly anticipating the debut of season two of Abbott Elementary. And I would just quickly say, this has been an incredible first half of season two. We know that season two is going to pick up after the holiday season, but they rolled out the first 10 episodes and I've loved 
every single episode that they've dropped and i think that they have already surpassed what they were able to achieve in season one which is saying a lot because it was an instant overnight sensation but now Mm -hmm. season two i feel like the writing is sharper the stories that they're telling are even more interesting i'm more invested in the entire ensemble of characters which i couldn't i couldn't exactly say in season one like there were still a couple of characters where i'm like yeah you're cool but i don't know if i'm 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 all the way all the way there with you but this time around i've just been loving everything that happened with season two and that finale my goodness, was just like an emotional, relatable experience that they were just able to tell with the whole, you know, Christmas party and what they did after work with the festivities and just the whole relationship between Janine, you know, just everything that happened there was just amazing. But I think that my favorite episode so far from this first half of season two, which is tough because I have a lot of a lot of standouts, but I think that my favorite one might be the sick day episode, which is the penultimate mm, sort of yeah. episode to the to the to the first half finale, and that was just to see you know Ava have to be a teacher for a day because Janine was at home sick <laughs> with food poisoning, and yeah. to see her out of her element because she's like she's hysterical, you know, because you know she hysterical. she probably shouldn't be the principal, but just to see her out of her element trying to teach. And, and trying to really get a handle on those kids in the classroom, it, it was really fun. But season two so far, it's just been it's been outstanding. I love it. What's crazy is, you know, I think even in hindsight, just thinking about this season and last season, it might somehow even be better <laughs> than the first season. Like they really, Quinta really just took what she did with the first season and said, oh, y'all gave me another chance. OK, bet. Let me uh, let me let me not only keep it up, but let me level up, too. And it, sometimes I'm watching it. It feels like that. It's like, dang, you had something else to talk about and in some ways it's like damn you provided even more meaning you know even what you're, you're talking about um shoot from the, the last episode of this season or the this first half of the season to i don't there's just so much in it that like it's it's one thing to be able to get us to laugh it's another thing to be able to get us to feel you know what i mean and there's so many episodes you're like damn i felt that you know especially in in a in a tv show where it is about the teachers it is about uh, uh, people shoot that we that that are like us now. Like it's it's funny. If, I can imagine watching this in in like middle school and be like, I don't really relate to these people that much. Now I'm like, I absolutely relate to everything everyone in this show has going on almost all the time. And I think that's impressive to do without even having to be a teacher. It's like, yes, no, I can relate to that and I see that. And I think that's impressive, man. As, as far as favorite episodes so far this season, um, man, it's like you said, it's it's super hard, man. I will say there was the moment. Uh, what which episode is it? It's when Tariq comes back. <laughs> oh my and, goodness! Yeah, that was one of the and, earlier episodes. Yeah. Oh my god! And there's like, uh, uh, yeah, bro. The dude is just funny. Zach Fox is great. <laughs> in case you didn't know, and it's 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 just crazy to to see. Loki, he like plays himself on the show, but adds a little flair of actor to it. <laughs> and it's like, yeah, this dude is hilarious, man. So I love that episode. It's another episode. Might be the same episode actually. But where um, the 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 improv people come to the school and they are the cheesiest people in the world. But again, there's so much like merit in understanding in that episode. I think that's just like, nah, they, this is this is just really good TV, man. Like you understand what you're doing, but it's also funny on top of every all of that. It's also it's just funny. And so, man, it's just impressive work coming out of Abbott Elementary. Man. I can't wait to see the second half of the season. Yeah. Also, shout out to these random guest appearances that they've had spoilers if you have not caught up with Abbott Elementary but like earlier in the season when they had like that attack ad out against him Leslie Odom Jr. from the other school popped up Mm -hmm. and then in this you know first half season finale they had randomly I just did it caught me so off guard Vince Staples you know pops up (laughs) and he's like playing a character he's not playing Vince Staples he's playing himself but then like 
you fast forward 12 minutes and Andre Iguodala is all of a sudden like Ava's boyfriend of five years. It's like, what? It's like, like, who? <laughs> who are you? Who, what are you doing right here? But it was it was really good stuff, man. Yeah. Shout out to that whole team. It, it, it's truly it's truly one of the best shows on TV, especially from a comedy perspective. I mean, they're really Easy. they're really, you know, sort of owning the space now, you know, in terms of like workplace comedies like that, that that gap that I think we felt so long with shows like Parks and Rec and The Office like. Abbott has just come in and swooped that up and is now sort of like the king of of half hour comedy television right now. It's, it's really great to see. Um, next on my list is actually another documentary. I said this earlier this year that Shudder is the superior streaming service. And I believe that because of just the content that they produce, the original series and movies that they produce is just so well done. And the curated mm-hmm. list of old, obscure horror movies that you've never, ever, ever heard of <laughs> that they managed to get on their on their streaming service. I know that they're undergoing some some really rough transitions right now, just as like the entire like media landscape. Everything is just like on fire. But I checked out the 101 scariest horror movie moments of all time earlier this year. I think it dropped right before Halloween. You know that many of these networks they'll do like oh yeah the 31 nights of halloween well shutter's like oh no 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 no, we're doing the 62 nights of halloween this is a two-month celebration <laughs> forget what you heard because halloween is damn near a year-long thing for them but <laughs> they dropped this incredibly lengthy docuseries i think it was like i can't even remember how many episodes it was it might have been like six or seven maybe even eight documenting mm-hmm. what they perceive as being like the 101 scariest moments in horror movie history and it was amazing to watch just because of the amount of new movies that i've learned about it's presented as you would expect, it's a list, you know, counting down. So it's a tip, typical docu-series format that you've seen before. But what I love so much about this is that they really try to get genres and filmmakers and movies from all over the world, from all types of different eras, like all the way back to the, the 30s, the 40s, the 50s, the 60s. There's a lot of Italian stuff included here. There's just some really obscure stuff that I've never, ever heard of, but it just gave me a wealth of new things to like catch up on and watch and like add to my watch list on Letterboxd. It's like, yeah, now I want to check out that random, you know, giallo horror Italian movie that came out in 70, <laughs> whatever, like, because yeah. it just looks crazy because you see some really, they're able to get the footage from a a lot of these different movies and put it in because they're notably talking about specific moments within films it's not just like the film as a whole it's usually mm-hmm. a specific moment that is like the scariest moment and some of the stuff that i saw here i'm like oh yeah that looks really really interesting i want to get a flavor of that but it was a really entertaining docuseries i think everything that they produce in terms of documentary stuff is just great it, it fits alongside eli roth's horror history docuseries that he did there was like a monster horror docu-series that they dropped last year. They got the Curse Films docu-series that they produced. They just really, they they make some really compelling stuff that I'm always enjoying. So I really enjoyed this one. No, Shudder is so underrated, man. Um, I think it's just, maybe people just don't like horror as much as us. That's what it is. (laughs) They're scared. uh, They're scared. But I absolutely love Shudder, man. It's so good. Especially, there'd be some hitters on Shudder too sometimes. You know, you're talking about all the like, hidden gems sometimes it's just like gem gems on there i'm like dang when this movie get on shutter what the hell is going on here so i actually can't wait to watch that now that you said that i'm definitely about to probably go fire that thing up pretty soon oh it'll mm-hmm. load up your letterbox watch list immediately every time you get Easy. to a new entry you're like oh yep gotta add that gotta yep. add that and yep. find watch it and figure watches. it out where to watch it no absolutely for sure man man on the flip side talk about the opposite <laughs> of what you watched bro <laughs> I got the chance, finally. I mean, this movie is so anticipated for me. I finally got the chance to check out Marcel the Shell with shoes on. I actually bought this from A24. I bought the physical. I already knew I was going to like it. I was just like, I'm buying this. Um, and 
Marcel the Shell, for those who don't know, was a YouTube series. I mean, years and years and years ago. Uh, and it 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 blew up, you know. Um, it's literally about this little shell <laughs> that exists in in a home that has things to say uh, that are it's very quippy, it's very funny, um, but it's also really cute. Marcel's it's 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 supposed to be him, but it's really cute. Uh, and it just blew up on, on YouTube, man. In, in, in this film, Loki kind of talks about that a little bit. It goes through, like, it's like, it, it's pretending like we were there for the very first time that we met Marcel the Shell. Um, and this movie, man, is, it instantly became one of my favorite of the year. It, it's something about what this, this, what Marcel the Shell is supposed to represent. And, the the things that Marcel goes through in this movie, being a small shell in this big world and not really having a concept of that, or having maybe they maybe Marcel does have a concept of something bigger, but he pertains it to his small life, and it's something about that that's so funny and magical. Not only that, this movie destroyed me, man. I'm not gonna get into get into the spoilers, but it's it wrecked me. It really did. It's 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 so real. And so relatable for me that it I was on a whirlwind of, of emotions while watching it. Absolutely. It's funny. It's sad. It's introspective in a lot of ways and retrospective in a lot of ways that makes you think about, again, just the simple things that you that you have every day um, and, and kind of turns it on his head. Man, the movie is about Marcel living with his grandmother. It's about Marcel losing his family and a move like where all the other shells go, like all of a sudden. It's just me and my grandma. Where the hell are all the... Other? It's about finding the family in the show. It's even about... Um, um, it's about being on television at some point because Marcel does become famous through YouTube. It's about... Man, it's just about so many different things, but it's packaged so well. It's packaged like a really long version of those YouTube videos I used to watch, you know, back in the day. And I think that helped me love the film even more, like remembering... Watching Marcel the Shell on YouTube myself was like, damn, I remember this. Like, I remember how funny that this could be. And a lot of the quips made me laugh. And it's it's just really good, man. Shout out to Jenny Slate, who always played the voice um, of Marcel the Shell, even since the YouTube days. But even shout out to Dean Fleischer Camp, who is the director. He's actually in the movie himself. <laughs> um, shout out to him, too, man, because I think he, he, he absolutely killed it and understood, I think, what Marcel was and evolved Marcel into another ideology of what I never even thought possible in the in the thought of a movie format. It's crazy, man. But, man, I absolutely love this movie. I honestly can't wait to watch it again. I know people who watch it several times. I was like, damn, you watched it how many times? But now I kind of get it after watching it. I'm like, damn, this could be a, a really low-key a comfort movie. It's really quiet. There's not a lot of noise in this film. But that's exactly why it works and why it's so good, man. It's it's It really is phenomenal. Yeah, I've been dying to see this, and I'm mad at myself because I remember that they had this movie available on a flight, and I was going to watch it because it was short enough within the flight to watch, but I was so exhausted because it was a very early flight for one of these <laughs> these damn weddings I went to, and it was like a 6 a.m. flight. I turned that movie on and immediate, immediately fell asleep. Not oh, because yeah, it wasn't interesting, too, but yeah. yeah, it's because I was just like exhausted, and I couldn't stay up, and I'm thinking like, oh, well, you know. On the, on the return flight, I'll be good. I'll be able to catch it. Well, on the return flight, it wasn't available. Lucky <laughs> oh, me, even no. though it was the same flight. It was Delta. So shout out to Delta for not carrying it on every flight uh, available. But I'm definitely excited to check out Marcel the Shell because, uh, yeah, this has gotten 
pretty much universal acclaim. I haven't heard a single bad thing about it, so I can believe that it is it is truly one of the standouts for this year. So can't wait to see what it's about. Um, next on my list is Industry, which is the original series on HBO. I watched both seasons. Season two actually premiered earlier this year. So season one debuted in 2020. They had a little bit of a layoff and then came back earlier this year with 2022. If you don't know about Industry, um, it's a show on HBO, which is also in collaboration with BBC Two in the United Kingdom because... This show is basically following a group of young adults, and they are competing for these permanent positions at an investment banking company that's uh, located in London called Pierpoint Co. And so season one is all about the competition, them trying to get these permanent jobs within this investment company. And then season two is really about focusing on the characters that actually do get the jobs and just like how they're transitioning to this new workplace. And I love the show. I thought it was so, so good. I think it's one of HBO's best, but also mm. one of their most underspoken. Not many people are really tapped into industry like that right now, mm. but I think amongst the circles of people that do watch it, I've heard nothing but good things, even though some of the audience reactions to it haven't been the most positive, but I really love it because this is like the clear-cut example of just showing a series where you got a bunch of young people where it shows like... Yeah, you're probably in a situation and in a workplace where you spend too much time at the office, you're spending too many hours at your workplace, and you have a little bit too much responsibility on your hands because it is just so much depravity and just debauchery that happens in the show. A lot of these people are completely <laughs> fucked up. They are doing so many drugs. They're having so much sex with just everybody. But that's why I love it because there's just like a sense of chaos that you get from watching <laughs> some of these folks unravel because their their lives are totally consumed by the work that they are doing at this investment banking company. And look, it's it's taking place within the world of finance. And so it is known to be a bit of a cutthroat industry. And that's where you really get to see that come to the forefront within this within the series industry, because it's a fast paced environment. People are willing to backstab and betray you at any given moment. And, and what's interesting specifically about season two is that it actually places the pandemic right at the center of the story. That becomes an integral integral piece of the storytelling because you have to see how these mm -hmm. how these employees are transitioning back into the workspace after covid after being at home for so long which in the world of finance i don't know a ton about it but you can imagine that so much of the lifeblood of the financial world is in the fact that much of it takes place in person a lot of the work and a lot of the shit that goes down is on the floor inside the office in these day-to-day -day interactions with your colleagues and with your coworkers, and so you kind of see how that's affected everybody and what they're doing you know sort of on a on a remote basis at least in, at least in the beginning and then how they transition back into being in the workplace but mm -hmm. it's so good i mean it's 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 probably the best show about sex on tv right now and you wouldn't mm. you wouldn't think so because it's industry and it's about finances but it's about so much more than that it's about you know how people are really grappling with the pressures of work and how it just like turns into just again the depravity of like people's choices and like the fact that they just kind of don't give a fuck about each other and they just like mow Man. each other down and do whatever they have to do <laughs> to get ahead and just a lot of fucked up thinking but it's it, that, that's why it's good that's why you enjoy it because you can kind of look back and say like well i'm glad i'm not doing that i'm glad i'm not really at that <laughs> point in my life anymore um even though we might have we might have used to been you know a lot of us have mm -hmm. been reckless you know in the past like that's just a part of growing up sometimes and so yeah. it's it's really it's 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 a joyous watch for me um it's as sick and twisted as that might sound to say i i, I just really enjoy it because uh yeah it's entertaining and the writing is just so sharp so definitely recommend it if you're interested in watching something that's akin to the world of like boiler room or the wolf of wall street or wall street mm -hmm. the original movie in the 80s like it, mm -hmm. it shares a lot of the same spirit of those films as well so i think that that's that's why it's you know sort of a standout for me right now 
Yeah, I think us as humans, we're just agents of chaos anyway. So, like, that's usually the shows we like the most. Like, whenever, whenever something's happening <laughs> that's, like, a big spectacle in popular culture, it's always something ridiculous. There's a reason Game of Thrones is, like, always talked about as much as it is. Absolutely. It's because it's chaos. Like, and we love chaos as a people. That's why we all, like, oh, is it Game of Thrones Sunday yet? And it's like, so it sounds like industry kind of follows that same format of, like you said, it's just crazy. And that's why it's fun to watch. That's why it's amazing to watch. So, Absolutely can't wait to check it out. Sounds like I would also enjoy <laughs> that chaos. Definitely. Um, something else I got to check out. We're going to be in the Netflix room here for a couple of items. But, man, I think this is another one that might have just it hit, might have hit one of my favorite TV shows this year, man. Cyberpunk Edge Runners. Oh, my God. So this is an animated one-off series um i think there's 10 episodes i think that's that feels right to me maybe yeah there's 10 episodes of cyberpunk edge runners and it's a it's a, it's an animated series based off the video game <laughs> the project red video game that we just received not too long ago that was of course a, a train wreck of a release of a video game but they're recontextualizing um something something's Something, sorry, that people don't understand is that Cyberpunk now is a good game. Um, I haven't really played it a ton, but I've heard now all the bugs have been fixed. Time has passed. Several patches have come out. Mm. Now it's like, uh, oh, Cyberpunk is a good game again. And everyone's like, man, it's, you say that, but we've all kind of moved on, <laughs> you know, kind of type thing. Like, damn, I wish it was just good when it came out. But they're, they're kind of recontextualizing here. They're, they're throwing their hat back in the ring here and saying, look. This is the world of cyberpunk in anime fashion. And so Studio Trigger took on this project with, with CD Projekt Red to make Cyberpunk Edge Runners, this, this anime on Netflix, man. Holy shit. Um, so Studio Trigger did an uh, anime called Kill a Kill. But not only that, they also did uh, a couple episodes of Star Wars Visions that we talked about. They did The Twins and they did The Elder. And studio trigger man this is this is them at their best i mm. mean there's so much in here that i love and appreciate that even sometimes feels like other anime but for good reasons like sometimes i'm watching this and be like damn there's a little bit of beat cowboy bebop in here like this kind of this is kind of crazy but it really is a, a a sad story but it really in in the definition of a cyberpunk is and what it means and the idea there was this game that came out last year called the ascent that also felt very cyberpunky very futuristic we're starting to put computers in our bodies the neon lights the colors the guns and this 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 anime is that it's not it's not slow i mean it, it gets cracking pretty quick i mean after that first episode is nothing but guns blazing from there but there really is a story about a kid who is lost who has lost things in his life trying to make a name for himself there's a love story in it and all packed in within 10 episodes it's amazing action it's the music is crazy at times i mean really there's really i have like no complaints <laughs> after watching this this anime series man uh only th I, there's a certain moments where i'm like i did watch most of it dubbed there are certain moments like oh i, I wish i would watch this moment sub but the dubbed if you watch dubbed anime Watch Cyberpunk's Edge Runners, uh, Edge Runners in dub. Like, I mean, the voice acting is really good here. It feels authentic, you know, to what it is. But it's Studio Trigger having a great time. It's the voice actors having a great time. 
it's everything I think you would want really in a 10 episode anime. It's 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 pretty crazy and pretty balls to the wall constantly. And and I absolutely enjoy it myself, man. It's colorful. The animation at times is crazy. Uh, and it's just a very enjoyable piece of work that I can I can really honestly say was one of the favorite things I watched. I watched it really in two sittings. <laughs> um, and yeah, man, it's it's amazing. I need more people to check it out. That's great. I mean, especially considering the general reaction after Cyberpunk dropped and, and how much of a train wreck that was. I mean, to be able to come back and like reverse fortunes a little bit with this show is uh, definitely a positive. The next few things on my list are just a series of documentaries, mostly from Netflix, I think, that I watched. I'll just quickly talk about um, Jennifer Lopez Halftime, which is a documentary that dropped earlier this year. It's fine. It's a good documentary. I know, you know, people have feelings about J-Lo, of course, <laughs> but I enjoyed it. It's mostly, you know, centering on the preparation that she had to undergo for the halftime performance that she did a few years ago with Shakira, which is like the most watched halftime performance on YouTube at this point. It has like I don't know, like a billion views or something like that. It's crazy. But it just, you know, it just shows the preparation, the rehearsals, everything that led up to that moment. Uh, It's very much, you know, similar to what Beyonce had already done with the Homecoming documentary, though that documentary is 12 times better than this one. (laughs) That's really, I think, focusing on the artistry and the personal nature of what Beyonce had to undergo. This one feels more like a publicity tool, but... I can't be mad at that. J-Lo is still a huge name, still has a massive fan base. And I like her for the most part. You know, she mm-hmm. she has moments where you kind of dip in and out where I'm like, oh, I love J-Lo. And then I'm like, oh, OK, J-Lo, you're kind of annoying right now. But this one was fine. I thought it was a good documentary to show just like the hardships and how much has to go into the prep, the prepping of the Super Bowl, which I know we typically cover on the show. Anytime we get a, a notable halftime show or performer, mm-hmm. it's just not as easy as one would think. There is a there's so much behind it. There's so many political conversations, things you can and cannot do. Especially mm. over these past few years with Rock Nation and Jay Z mm. sort of taking over the the producerial responsibilities of the show, they're trying to push the envelope, you know, and they're getting a lot of performers that come from you know uh, uh, you know diverse backgrounds, you know, black performers, Latinx performers, like J Lo and Shakira were kind of the the testing you know, sort of act of this new experiment. And and thus we've gotten, you know, Rihanna's going to come up this year and we got the Dr. Dre and Snoop Dogg one earlier. We mm-hmm. got, you know, all these, all these inventive, you know, new super, super bowl halftime performances, but it was fine. It was good. You know, it was good to just see, you know, JLo sort of be in her element and really focus on music and not so much the acting, you know, side of things, which can be here to miss, but I enjoyed it. I thought it was fine. Man. Uh, yeah, there's actually a lot going on with JLo, even as we speak right now, it's kind of crazy. Everyone's like, I have to say that it's like a there was like a poll on Twitter and someone was like, "What's a celebrity that you've met that you just you you did not have a good interaction with them?" And there's just a slew of stories <laughs> underneath the post, and it's all J Lo. Everyone is just like, "Damn, J Lo's <laughs> a terrible person. I had a bad interaction with her. This and that. It's crazy because." She just has a facade, you know. I don't know something. She has a facade that she's like the nicest. I'm thinking made in Manhattan when I look at J Lo. Absolutely, like, this woman looks hella nice to me. And then everyone's saying the opposite in real life. It's just crazy. But I, I do want to check out that. I think halftime stuff is so interesting, especially like you said with the Rock Nation stuff. I really want to see what was going on there, especially again as big as many views that thing has gotten as a moment that was too for a lot of people um, across the world. Really, um, it's I, I definitely need to check that out. This next, my next item um, I have, I'm not going to talk about it too long, but it's a movie called Me Time starring Mark Wahlberg and Kevin Hart. Straight out. Movie's not great. Um, but <laughs> oh, man. I will, 
I will say for me, I, I have I actually take a lot of guilty pleasure in a lot of movies like this where like I know I'm gonna get a couple laughs, so I'll watch it anyway, <laughs> regardless of how bad the movie is. I'm like, I'll laugh a couple times at least, and so I watch it, and that's really what it was. Like a lot of people found it unfunny, but there's times I'm like, no, nah, bro, that was funny. Like, how could you not laugh at that? It's not funny all the time. There's a reason it's not that well regarded. It's a reason a lot of people probably never even heard of this film. But there's a couple things in it, you know. Um, and, 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 and again, for that, I, I had to I had to bring it up. I, I can't even necessarily say I suggest it, <laughs> per se. If you're not one of those people like me, again, I have guilty pleasure. I'm like... Kevin Hart, Mark Wahlberg, something funny has to happen. And to me, it does. Um, but again, it's just not a good movie. You can laugh at something and be like, that movie wasn't good. Um, that's very much a thing. And that very much applies um, to this movie, Me Time, man. So honestly, I'll just leave it there. Mark Wahlberg, man, he's been on a very cold streak. Um, my guy has been taking a lot of streaming projects, a lot of streaming movies between Ooh. Netflix and Paramount Plus, And they they have just not, I mean, I, I can't really think of the last thing that he did that, that hit in a significant way so i i hope for even uncharted you know we saw earlier this year just not a great movie that was kind of his biggest splash play but it just just wasn't great you know (laughs) now we're talking a long time now but you might be right you might be right um the next one on my list is white hot the rise and fall of abercrombie and fitch on netflix which i know a lot of you have probably watched uh this came out earlier this year not gonna spend a ton of time on this either. Um, it's just you know a documentary about Abercrombie and Fitch and how fucked up they were and how fucked up we all know them to be. I mean, there's nothing mm-hmm. really that surprising here if you ever just paid attention to an Abercrombie store, if you ever just like opened your eyes as a black person to see what they did in their business practices. I mean, this was the most unsurprising documentary ever. I mean, it was it was fine and it was entertaining to a, to a certain degree to to just go back and kind of laugh at how far they've fallen because nobody really talks about them anymore and they are not the brand that they used to be because they were popular. They absolutely Mm. had a streak and they had a run, but you just go back and you see like their CEO, Mike Jeffries, and how fucked up he was and their discriminatory practices. Like again, if you're a black person or a Latinx person, like if you ever just like went to the mall and paid attention, you saw like, yeah, this place isn't really for me. I'll never forget when I was younger. And I went to an Abercrombie store, you know, in high school, you know, we used to hang out at the mall. That was kind of one of the only Mm -hmm. things you could do. And I would go into the store and I'm just like, what the fuck is this? Like, who are they catering to? There's nobody in here that looks like me. All their stuff fits these super muscular buff dudes who probably (laughs) surf, you know, five times a week. Like, it just made sense to me then in watching this documentary. It makes Mm -hmm. even more sense to me now that, you know, they, they are what they are. Now, I know... A couple of people that actually work for them and so mm-hmm. <laughs> there are many people who are not happy with the existence of this documentary but i'm all for the dragging and all for the yes. exposing of you know these corporations that that had these really bad business practices so it is what it is it's kind of one of those things like if you just want to see a dumpster fire then feel free to watch it because it, it it's out there for you to consume but it's not gonna it's not gonna set the world on fire and it didn't set the world on fire when it came out uh, no pun intended but it was what it was it was just like another documentary to just show like yeah this was a fucked up company and a fucked up time and a fucked up place and here we mm-hmm. are we're just kind of looking back and hopefully we learn something from it no really though um there was a moment i had like one or two Hollister shirts <laughs> and it's we all have funny, our shortcomings man. Des. we all we all we all mess up in life a couple of times hey man i had a they were they were they were decent shirts man i thought i was about to go surfing for real i thought you you would couldn't tell me i ain't living cali boy i was there uh but no it's 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 really crazy man it's actually crazy to see Abercrombie and finch is also like slightly tried to rebrand like yeah. I've, I've seen some stuff and i'm like damn actually 
kind of like that shirt. What's going on here? Like, you could tell, like, the Mike Jeffries of it all is kind of, you know what I mean? They're trying to get rid of it, but it's hard because it is such a sour taste <laughs> in your mouth of what was going on there, man. So, it's, of course, it's a dumpster fire. He It deserved a dumpster fire. So, yeah, it's it's... Wow, what a documentary. I kind of want to see what they say low-key. I'm like, hmm, what y'all got to say in this documentary? Oh, so yeah. I might turn it on as some background noise one day because that this sounds interesting to me. So on the, another opposite side of things, again, it's funny. We are like, this back and forth is hilarious. Um, I am in my last season of a rewatch of a very, very popular, famous black classic in The Parkers, man. What I I just had to bring it up, you know. I've been I've been rewatching my black sitcoms as they have become available on streaming services again. I remember I reviewed Moesha recently. I reviewed Jamie Foxx show recently. The Parkers is is next on that list. Again, I got one more season left, but I had to bring it up now just in case I forgot. What a comfort show for me, man. Um, just the just every time it comes on, I'm remembering the days of a UPN constantly and what that felt like with the girlfriends and in uh, 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 half and half and just so many good black, so much good black television, man, that we really, we don't get that anymore. We don't get that long string Thursday nights of just only black TV, unless you really are just watching BET, you know what I'm saying? This was the, that was the one time you didn't have to have cable and you could watch all your, the, the black shows, you know, and, 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 and I miss that. But the Parkers, man, Countess Vaughn, Monique, some of the most talented people, Really ever and of all time, man. Dorian Wilson. There's always so much I go back and find in these shows that I never have before. Now that I, that you're grown, right? Realizing this was on a college campus. There's always Greek stuff that happens or really grown people stuff that happens in these shows that you're just like, dang, what's going on? Or realizing that Nikki was really tripping all the time with Professor Ogilvy. You're like, what is going on with you, ma'am? <laughs> uh, all, all those things, man. It's just, it, it's still, it's crazy. You can go back and still really appreciate these shows for what they were, no matter if time has changed, man. They really remain timeless. So I had to bring up the Parkers again, man. I still love it. It's still very much comfortable. I still laugh at stuff. Um, oh, and I have to give the Parkers kind of the one up when it comes to, uh, they tried to do music a lot in the Parkers. A lot of our black shows didn't necessarily harp on that as much as the Parkers does. I'll give another attribution, of course, to Jamie Foxx show. This is what Jamie Foxx does. But the Parkers is another one of those shows. It's like, no, every uh, every couple episodes, they gonna sing. Like, you got Countess Vaughn, you gonna sing. And that's what they did. And so I appreciate that about the show as well, man. It's 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 It really is a classic. Yeah, a lot of people probably don't realize and remember the Parkers was a spinoff of Moesha, which... Back then, exactly. with those UPN black comedies, a lot of those shows were spinoffs of each other. And I remember like that big moment a few years ago when they announced, when Netflix announced that they were picking up a lot of those shows to have available. Everybody was like, wait, this was a spinoff of this? Like, I never, I never made yes. that connection. Because as you <laughs> said, like, you just kind of go back and look at it with a new lens, which is always like a rich mm -hmm. experience for sure. Uh, next on my list, which is actually on both of our lists, is a documentary that just recently premiered on Netflix called Is That Black Enough For You, which was directed by Elvis Mitchell. Now, if you watch a lot of documentaries like I do, Elvis Mitchell, he's typically, when it comes to like black topics and black media, he's typically mm -hmm. featured in a lot of documentaries. Um, he's yep. a guy with like 
great dreads. You'll, you'll you'll recognize him if you watch plenty of documentaries. But he just released his documentary um, that premiered earlier this year at the New York Film Festival um, and got widely released on Netflix back in November. Got a chance to check this out to really just kind of talk about the history and the legacy of African-American cinema, especially with the focus on films that were released in the 1970s. And so as soon as it was released, I was like, I got to watch this because yep. I just I just love this type of stuff to go back and look and not only remember things that I grew up watching, but also discover, you know, some some some, you know, blind spots of things that I haven't seen. And it was it was incredible. It was a great documentary. It, it was long and definitely spent a lot of time. But what I love the most about it is the fact that it firmly takes a stance on how much black art, especially cinema, needs to be credited for the invention and the creation of certain trends and certain notable yes. things in Hollywood. You know, this mm -hmm. this guy, Elvis Mitchell, he makes no apologies apologies to say like, oh yeah, this very mainstream white film that you know and is often regarded as like the greatest of whatever, it got its certain element or its certain trait from a black film. And he can make that direct connection mm -hmm. because the black film preceded a lot of these these different films. And I just love the fact that it takes a very hard stance on that stuff because I would I would definitely venture to say like, yeah, that's the case. You know, you can see like how Shaft influenced Saturday Night Fever. You can see it all in there. And I just yeah. I just love that it draws those connections and really just talks about the trends that were experienced at the time for 70s films and like some of the challenges that they, that they had to undergo and and how that really kind of influences current stuff. The only thing that I would kind of level against it, and, and maybe he'll make another one. I just wanted to keep mm -hmm. going. I just wanted to see, oh, well, what's happening in the 80s and what's happening in right. the 90s? Like I want him to examine all of the trends of black cinema, African-American cinema, and 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 the actors and the and the writers and the directors and what they undergo because these eras, they evolve so much, you know, and we talk mm -hmm. about that a lot on the show, like how things used to be different, like how there was like a renaissance in the 90s. You know, I would love for him to eventually get there because a lot of films and like a lot of black art just kind of disappeared from the mainstream in the 80s. There wasn't yeah. a ton of stuff being made and he started to like slightly exactly. get there but mm -hmm. i just want him to keep going so hopefully you know maybe he can make a part, part two for it what did you think about this documentary though man there that moment you said about shaft and saturday night fever low-key blew my mind partially i had probably haven't seen saturday night fever all the way through even i remember just watching parts of it but just like the idea the concept <laughs> was like holy shit he's on to something here you know what i mean I, I really love that about it something else i really loved about this documentary is I think the understanding of the history of what it meant to get to what what a black film really was, right? Where in so many early days, it really did take the motivations in breaking of barriers of black actors and filmmakers to exist in these white projects so often and so much in order for us to arrive at the 70s, for us to arrive at the black exploitation era it had to go through so many etches and so many different kind of forms in order for us to get um to where we are now i think there was a, there was a moment um that was weird for me on on twitter somebody was like ah oh, is is black enough for you it's great but uh they, they were like uh but if a film has it's not a black director not all black actors then it's not a black film i'm like that's literally what the documentary I think is trying to say is like we had to go through a film with all black people with a white director in order to get here. You know what I'm saying? Like we, in order for us to have black directors um, showing up for us in order to get to Martin Van Peebles, we had to get to some other, you know, some other ridiculous stuff that we might not have exactly wanted to do. That wasn't exactly for us by us. One of the, the things the documentary makes a point of also 
a lot of the movies in those early times, I think it, it might have been Lawrence Fishburne that said it was Lawrence Fishburne or Samuel Jackson, which I was ecstatic to see that they were they could talk in this documentary as well. But they were like, I wasn't interested in seeing that stuff back then. I wasn't interested in seeing some of those movies because me as a as a as a cinephile, as a, somebody who was interested in 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 film history, I'm like, man, should I go back and watch those movies? Yeah. And now I have a new perspective of like. They didn't even really want to watch those movies. Why the fuck am I watching this movie? <laughs> if they weren't even interested in it and the reasons why they weren't interested in watching some of those films, you know, and it's like, damn, you know, that's real. Maybe I'm not really interested in watching <laughs> some of those movies anymore with that new perspective. Maybe I, and, and, and some of that was like, damn, you know, you have a really good point there. Um, and for that, man, I, I really enjoyed myself. There were so many movies. I think that's been lost in translation. Um What's the name of the movie? I think it's Mahogany with Diana Ross and Billy D. Williams. How was that? There's just certain movies that has been lost in time. That's like, how do we not talk about this movie all the time? Billy D. Williams and Diana Ross were like the two biggest goddamn stars at the time. I didn't even know the movie existed. Hmm. I was like, what is this movie? What are you talking? What are you saying to me right now? Like, why don't I know that this is a thing? And I'm glad I watched this now. I'm like, oh, shit. What is this? why don't we talk about this movie? And so it, it really did fuel me to like kind of not reinvent, but kind of get back into my discovery of what black film really is, what those moments really were. I can only imagine if I love movies the way I do now, I'd have been like Billy D and who were in the movie together, Diana Ross. I'm in the theater day one, you know what I mean? And so it's, it's rekindling. I think that love for black film that's what made this uh, this documentary pretty pretty special to me, man. I agree with you. He started to touch on some stuff of why movies started to disappear. I was like, okay, why? What movies did come out of that era? Why did they bank on certain movies in the 80s? Shoot, early 90s, he was even like a lot. There wasn't a lot of black film at certain times. So I'm like, damn, what happened? Like, I wish you could just expand <laughs> on what you're telling us. I'm with you 100%. And that's really, like, the, the really only nitpick I, I have with the with the documentary for the most part. But I enjoyed it, man. I really did. See, this is why film preservation is so critical and so important. And I think that's why we're experiencing such a sore spot with the HBO Max conversation right now, with the removal of so many different things. Because mm -hmm. if these films aren't preserved and if they're not widely distributed and released and available for rental or purchase or whatever then you can't see them, you know, and mm -hmm. I, I have to shout out, you know, recently Criterion and, you know, you and I, we both collect physical media. They've been tapping a back back into a lot of these like older black films that just haven't had proper physical releases and they're releasing them remastered HD, Blu-ray, sometimes even 4K quality. You know, you mm -hmm. you can get the library of Melvin Van Peebles, you know, you can get like right. all of the films that he made, like that stuff just wasn't readily available for. They just did a shaft, you know, 4K Criterion, like Mississippi Masala from Denzel in the early 90s. Like a lot of people mm -hmm. don't even see these movies or even know that they exist and that they were that they were kind of you know really revolutionary for certain themes and things that they were tackling but film preservation is it's it's so vital and it's so important and you know i, I think that that's why you know you and i will always be champions of physical media but even beyond that like streaming or or, or rental or vod like make these available somewhere if possible and and, yeah. and do the work and you know hopefully put in the time and the effort that it need that, that they need to, to to be restored properly so that people can go back and be educated about these and, and, and you know sort of hopefully expose themselves to them because i think it's really it's really important to film history overall um next is another documentary we both seen the redeem team which is on netflix i, I don't have a ton here it was a cool documentary i mean it mm -hmm. it gave me what i expected the parts i enjoyed the most were about kobe 
that's that's of course that's kind of why I was here. You know, Kobe was the leader of the Redeem team. We kind of know the yeah. story of what they were at that at that particular moment. They were coming off of the really disappointing run at Athens in 2004 at that Olympic Games. You know, it was just not. It was not a great time because you had the dream team mm-hmm. in the 90s, which took the world by storm. 2004 in Athens, I remember watching that, and it was just like, yeah, what the fuck is the NBA doing? Like, why are they <laughs> – nobody wants to go. Nobody really wants to play in Athens, Greece. Like, it, it just wasn't a good showing. And then you come back in the Beijing Olympics, which I remember that that Olympic Games. It was Damn. it was incredible. It was a, it was an yeah. insane time to just see, like, mm-hmm. LeBron and Kobe and Ooh. D-Wade. Like, it Ooh. was like, oh, this is a moment right here. But that was, that was peak and prime Kobe. That was, like, right before – those two championship mm-hmm. wins that he got after, you know, climbing that mountain again for so long without, you know, having Shaq by his side. It, it was great to just sort of revisit that era. That's why I enjoyed it the most for for that particular reason. No, for sure. And it was like just small details. I think I was forgetting in that time. So it felt good to like jump back and be like, oh, yeah, that did happen. Because um, I forgot actually incoming to this documentary about the whole what Kobe was going through at the time, you know, they talk about in the documentary is like, no, this is chapter two of Kobe. I was like, you're right. I forgot about that. It's also honestly just refreshing. I've always, I've always had two favorite basketball players my whole life. Kobe Bryant and Dwayne Wade. It just, it it is what it is. And to see them both in the same documentary, to see the way that Dwayne Wade talks about Kobe is amazing. One of my favorite parts of this probably is, uh, uh, honestly seeing some of these people talk like Carmelo doesn't talk to people a lot. (laughs) He does like, in this documentary, like, kind of, I mean, he's talking. Um, also love that LeBron was just able to cuss in this documentary. He was throwing all kind of F-bombs around. I was like, oh, shit, this is a <laughs> this, this is a documentary for real. So I enjoyed those parts as well. Um, and the Coach K of it all. I, I like that aspect, too. I wasn't really sure what that streamline looked like when Coach K came in um, to be the coach of the team. But it was I think it was cool seeing that aspect, too. So, yeah, I, I, I also enjoyed the documentary. But it was more than every anything. It was just cool to be like, Oh yeah, this thing did happen, and that's when it happened and how it happened. So, it was it was pretty dope in that regard. No doubt. Um, another one we both seen is Emily the Criminal, which just became available on Netflix. It did release earlier this year uh, via theatrical release. It was released by Universal um, back in August, and it actually premiered, I think, worldwide at the Sundance Film Festival back in January. So it's been out for quite a while, but it just became available on Netflix. The movie is starring Arby Plaza, um, who's also in The White Lotus I'm going to talk about shortly. But it's a crime thriller film. Um, you put this on my radar because I hadn't realized it was on Netflix and Got a chance to check it out, and I thought it was pretty cool. I thought it was a good movie. Um, I always love a good crime thriller, and and I think yeah. that Aubrey Plaza is an actress. She's really, really talented at these dark roles. You know, anytime she's, like, yes. in something, I'm like, yeah, she has a specific niche that you totally go to her for because she has a darkness about her that's, like, a good thing because she can leverage that for her performances, and I found that stuff to be quite intriguing. Um, overall, I think that the film, in terms of what it has to say about society, it's probably where it works strongest because it's really looking mm-hmm. at a person who had some rough patches in their life and didn't have a really fair shot to redeem themselves. And that just comes back to haunt them. And it totally lends credence to the idea of like, well, this is why they turn to a life of crime, because every mm-hmm. time they try to just make better of their situation, everybody kind of stopped them at the gate and said, like, no, you're not allowed here. So for that stuff, I think it worked incredibly well. I did find the ending to be a little bit predictable. And i could have used a little bit more time with it. It wasn't, it wasn't, you know, great, but it wasn't a train wreck either. Uh, I just found the inning to be a little bit soft for me. But overall, I thought mm-hmm. it was a, it was a totally fine and enjoyable watch. Yeah, man, it was cool. Um, I really do like Aubrey Plaza, um, and I think you know she did. She came and did what she had to do. To be honest, it's it's just one of those cool. I think it's like Loki, a, a movie that is perfect for streaming in, in a lot of different ways. It's like, oh, yeah, this is a cool Friday night watch. I haven't, you know, really seen a movie like this in a while. Um, 
and yeah, man, you everything you said, I really echo. I don't have too much to add. Shout out to Theo Rossi too. Um, I hadn't seen him <laughs> since uh, for a long time. I can't remember last time, last thing I seen him in, but it was cool um, to see him back here again. But I really like the, I think, down to earthness of this movie. Like you said, it really is a big commentary on the way that, how fucked up the world is and how it can shape somebody's really motivation to do things that they technically don't want to do but have to do, um, and, and how that. T- how that can turn you into somebody else. Uh, I, I really, I really do like the, I think the realism of that and how you know real her situation was. Um, so yeah, it, overall it was cool. It was a decent watch. Nothing too crazy, but yeah, a cool sit down. Definitely. The next show I'm going to talk about is something I just checked out like a week ago. Um, the Offer, which is on Paramount Plus. I've been meaning to get to this show all year, but I had a little bit of a crisis because I remember when it came out and I was about to watch it when it was initially debuting. And then I saw the reaction to it and it was largely negative. And so it kind of turned me away. And I was like, well, if it's not that great, then I can definitely spend my time watching something else. I try to really just watch only the stuff I know I'll enjoy. I don't, I don't really, you know, I don't really engage that much with things that, that, I, that, that I don't think I'll like. But then, I, you know, I just said, F it, I'm going to watch it. And this is probably the biggest surprise of the year for me because I enjoyed this so damn much. It was such mm. a it was such a treat to be able to tap into this and really just kind of live in this world for 10 episodes. If you don't know, the offer is essentially a limited series that's about the making of the original Godfather film, which came out in 1972, which has a notorious backstory in terms of the movie that came to be and how they brought it to life. There are so many different Hollywood myths and legends about the making of this movie and just how tumultuous and difficult it was to bring to life on the screen because I don't know if anybody knows this, but The Godfather is actually based off of a book which came out a few years before the release of the movie written by Mario Puzo. It's the one of the best-selling books of all time. It was the best-selling book of all time when it was initially released. And so this is just kind of documenting the journey from the writing of the book, the selling of it, to actually bringing this movie to life, and also just what Paramount as a company, the the movie studio was going through at the time, they were certainly not in a great place, and they had to really get something under their belt that was going to give them a win to make sure that they could continue their long and viable run as a movie studio, and so everything was kind of on the line for the making of this movie. A lot of people's lives and careers were at stake, and I just love this because we don't get to really see that many projects that focus Mm -hmm. on the making of another movie or another tv show it doesn't really happen like we get we get documentaries on that stuff all the time but an actual like fictional sort of account of what went down at that particular moment in history is is pretty rare and i just got to shout out mike tolkien who's the creator of this show he actually did a movie in the early 90s called the player starring tim robbins it's about a hollywood Mm -hmm. producer if people haven't seen it i would highly encourage you to watch it it's about the making of a movie but things go very wrong. It's on HBO Max, I believe, but it's also like on Criterion if you like physicals. Great, great movie. But he's the perfect person to make this because it just shows how difficult it truly is to make this stuff. It shows everything that goes behind all the decisions, all the intricacies, all the small things that just add up to bigger things over time. And even more importantly, it's looking at the making of The Godfather from the perspective of not only the producerial standpoint, because Miles Teller is playing Albert Ruddy, who is the producer of The Godfather, who doesn't get mentioned a lot. You know, we always talk about Francis Ford Coppola. We always Mm -hmm. talk about Mario Puzo. You know, those two wrote the script. We talk about the stars, you know, like Marlon Brando and Al Pacino. But people don't really talk about Albert Ruddy as the guy who had to bring this to life. And the fact that he didn't even have like a long track record. He had made and sold Hogan's Heroes, an old TV show. And that was Mm -hmm. really it. So for him to come in and usher in one of the 
greatest films ever made. It's just kind of a miraculous story. So it's from his point of view. But you also get the mob story on the side because there are a lot of mob gangster connections in real life to what was going on at the time with Joe Colombo, mm. a, no- a notorious mm. gangster who was a part of one of the five families in New York at that particular time. I mean, it's just looking at it from all angles. I really, really enjoyed it. It's not the greatest show of the year. And, and there's certainly some things that you can look at and say, like, this is kind of hokey. It's a little it's a little over the top, especially in the beginning. But once I got into it and once I became really invested, I mean, it just it never let me go. It's just such an enjoyable watch, especially if you're a fan of The Godfather. And I feel like that that's why they made the show. If you mm-hmm. love The Godfather, if that's a story that you've you know revisited over the years in a movie that you particularly find as as one of the masterworks of cinema, then this just leans completely into that. It's made for fans of The Godfather. So I, I found it to be a tremendous success. Uh, yeah, I'm going to have to tap in pretty soon. I was going to do my uh, my Godfather rewatch at the top of the year, actually. It was like one of my plans. And so I think I'm going to add the offer as one of like, you know, as tack it on to the end. You know what I'm saying? Kind it's of the perfect thing. companion piece. Like I would I would highly you know, watch the movies and then watch this right after. And it's like it's the best, like complete experience I think you can get. I believe it, man. Dang, I can't. I really can't wait to get into it. Especially, yeah, we don't talk about a lot of Paramount Plus stuff on here, so that's pretty cool that I finally get to turn Paramount Plus on. <laughs> uh, man, so I got the chance to check out a league of their own on Amazon Prime Video, man. Talking about a lot of favorites on this list today. Um, this has already entered, I think, again, one of my favorite TV shows of the year, a league of their own, playing off the the original film of the same name um, is about athletic young women who get the chance to have their own, um, their own baseball league in, in what that looks like for them. It's about what the way in which they recontextualize it here, man, they really harp on the LGBTQ <laughs> just aspects of what it would actually look like if a bunch of women were to be on a team they, they harp on that. Not only that, there's really two stories here. They harp on what it looks like from a young black girl to also be wanting to, to, to become a pitcher. But she's also weighed down by so many other things. She's weighed down by the pressures of being black, of being a woman, of um, um, her, 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 uh, her identity, so many things, and and they turn that into a TV show, and it's absolutely phenomenal, man. The actresses here, the acting here, I think is really good, man. Abby Jacobson, the the main black woman in the show, is played by Shante Adams, my wife. Um, Darcy Garden is here, who she is absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I, I talked about her when I was doing my review of The Good Place on the podcast back when. She's really good, man. Roberta Colandrette, I mean. It really is just a whole just pantheon of women in this show that is 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 really giving us character moments that make sense when it comes to again a group of women who are just trying to play baseball. But what that means outside of that, what that means to when they first started playing baseball, all these a lot of these women because they are LGBTQ weren't the most girly women in the world. But the owner was like, they need to be wearing skirts, they need to be wearing lipstick, and what that looks like for them, what 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 that story holds for them, how they counteract that, how they do become good baseball players because of 
you know, all, all these things they had to go through. So it's a really amazing show, man. Uh, Amazon Prime Video. I absolutely recommend it. I enjoyed myself. I think I have to say I'm a, I am a little biased in saying I also really just love the black story of it. Shantae Adams playing Maxine here is it's amazing. Like to see to see them focus on it. It's funny when a league of their own in the promotion, I really don't get a sense that like there's this whole other part of the TV show that we're not talking about. Really, you could cut off all the the white womanness of it, and Shantae Adams as Maxine could carry the whole another part of the show. Um, and it, it it really is two stories going on at the same time in parallel. And I, I just enjoy you know those moments of watching a black woman go through the things that she's having to go through. Um, and it's it's not one of those series that's pandering on. There's not all this trauma of like you're black. I'm calling people the N word. It's like no, you just get it, <laughs> and and it's really enjoyable, man. I, I I really like a league of their own, and I, I I I'm campaigning for people to check it out for sure. What's crazy is I had no idea that this show existed. I had no clue that they made a series adapting essentially the movie that came out in the early '90s, which is a movie I really really enjoy. That that that's a great film that also has like themes about feminism and just like how difficult it was to exist in that type of environment, this all women's baseball team and just some of the trials and tribulations that that, that they had to go through. But to take this as a show and as you said, recontextualize it and, and also update it, you know, as a concept for a new audience yep. and, and bring in more perspectives and stories. That's really, really interesting. So I definitely want to uh, add that to my watch list and check it out because I, I really didn't even know that they that they did this. But it's actually low key a bit of a brilliant idea because that first mm -hmm. movie is important. And, and, and I think that this show now, you know, based off of everything you said, it has its own, you know, level of importance to it as well to make it different enough from that original film. Um, the next show I'll talk about is something that I literally just finished like a day ago because it just premiered the White Lotus season two, which um, I have to say season one of the White Lotus I watched earlier this year, back earlier this fall. And I thought it was fine. And I remember you talked about it on the podcast and you brought up some really good things about it. And it was like, yeah, it was cool, though. It was fine. And many, many people were like, yeah, it's like one of the best shows of the year from the season one from last year. And I, and I watched it thinking the same thing. And it got a lot of Emmy recognition. And I'm like, it was cool. It was good. Exactly. But it wasn't like it wasn't like a standout. It wasn't like the best thing I ever saw. I just didn't exactly. really I didn't really understand. So like when season two debuted, I wasn't in a hurry to get to it. I was like, mm -hmm. I, you know, I'll get to it eventually. But I wasn't in a hurry. But Season two just wrapped up like a week ago. And so I was like, all right, well, all episodes are now now out. It might be better to just binge it that way. And I got to say, Jesus, another surprise. This is significantly better than season one to me. Like, I love that. <laughs> 10, 10 times better than season one to me. I, I don't necessarily know why. Maybe it's just because of the themes that are examined in this season just resonate with me more. But mm -hmm. I just loved everything that season two had to offer. Mike White has said this in sort of the after the episodes. He said, if season one is about money, then season two is about sex. And that's 1000% true. Mm. And season two was just like so engrossing and so enthralling from the story that they're trying to tell. And it's so messy. It's so beautifully messy in just everything that happens here because you get these characters that go to the White Lotus Resort, this time in Sicily, where season one was in Hawaii. And I just found everything to be elevated, not only the cast itself, but also just the environment. Like, Sicily just looks better on film than Hawaii does. Like, Hawaii is a beautiful place. I've been to it. But Sicily is just, like, also... It's Sicily. It just it's it's crazy how beautiful it is. So you get that mm -hmm. backdrop, but then the characters here, the cast that they have, F. Murray Abraham is in here. 
Michael Imperioli, Jennifer Coolidge is like, you know, one of the two characters that does come back from season mm-hmm. one because this is, just, you know, an entirely new cast. I mean, every story that that's introduced here, Arby Plaza, she she probably steals the show based off of what she has to go through. But every story here I found to be so compelling. There was probably only one element that wasn't as interesting as the other ones. But by the end of it, and I won't go into details, but by the end of it, I was totally invested because you get a sense of like, the true sinister nature of what's actually unfolding here and like who the villains are of this show. It doesn't become apparent really until like the, the last couple of episodes. But once you realize what it is, it's pretty chilling and it's like, holy shit, like people are in real danger here. But this one is just this season was just like by far and away so much better than season one for me. I really enjoyed it. It, it, it might it might very well end up in my top 10 of the year. It's really mm-hmm. that good. And I was just I was so, so invested into everything happening. And I actually took my time. Like, I didn't binge it in a one day sitting, Mm -hmm. even though you really could because it's only seven episodes. I really tried to take my time and just, like, watch one episode a day and really absorb it and really become involved with it. But I just loved everything here and just, like, just the interpersonal nature of, like, all these relationships and how, like, yeah, all of these people come here not necessarily knowing each other. But by the end of the trip, everybody's had some sort of interaction with each other because it's a resort at the end of the day. It's not that many people there. And, like, all of these folks are insanely rich. So... They're likely to run into each other anyway, but mm-hmm. just the whole examination of sex and just the different lens and layers that you can look at it through from, you know, heterosexual relationships to bisexual mm-hmm. relationships to gay relationships, like all of that's in here and all of it's just so well done. And I think the performances across the board are really what elevate this, you know, so far and away above season one for me. So I, I, I actively enjoyed this so much. I damn near might rewatch it again, like ASAP. It was mm-hmm. that fun for me to just like sit here and just like take in this whole story this season. Man, that is so good to hear. Um, and I actually had a had a feeling that was the case. By the way, people are talking about it. Um, you know, I'm on Twitter a lot, but seeing, I'm seeing more about season two than I did about season one. Season one, I seen a lot again on like the critical side. Like, what the hell are y'all talking about? It's on these award shows. But this time around, I'm like, people are tweeting about White Lotus. Like, people know what this is. <laughs> Part of me is a little surprised, but. It sounds like, man, I need to, I've been meaning to watch it. I was just giving it time. Like you said, I was waiting kind of for that last episode to hit. Now that it's hit, I really can't wait to get into it. And even in some ways, it feels like they even maybe like up the actors a little bit. Like even they threw in some more, some more seasoned people. It feels like into the, into the the boat a little bit. Bigger budget for sure. Yeah. Bigger budget. Absolutely. So I, I, I can't wait to check it out, man. It sounds like. Yeah, sounds like something. I, I mean, I was gonna watch it anyway, but it sounds like something I'm, I'm gonna like even more the second time around than than that first season. Um, something I'm gonna talk about really quick is Martin. Man, they had a reunion show, um, and uh, I, it might have premiered. I, I can't remember if it premiered on HBO first. Or no, BT this is BT Plus. This is BT Plus. I, I, I'm very connected to this project. <laughs> I, was yeah. like, I was like, wait, I'm pretty sure. Okay. And it came out what June I think of yeah. this year, mm-hmm. and man, what a just! I, I finally got the chance to watch. I think I watched it. This is something I also just watched like yesterday. Um, I finally got to the chance to check it out, man, and it is full of really just everything that I wanted it to be. I think the reminiscing, the seeing all of my you know favorite people from Martin in a, in a room together, and I love what I love most about this reunion is. They they put respect on their own names without, you know, being too 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 cocky about it or too, you know, 
full of themselves, really, because there's so much that Martin Lawrence really does move with so much humility and so much humbleness that, you know, you're watching it and they're talking in the room. They're like, Martin, boy, if you don't talk your shit, like in the middle of the reunion. And I really love that about it. I love that they they double down and like, look, we the first show to ever put together a sketch in, in, in sitcom. You know, a lot of people didn't even know what that looked like, but Martin did it. And Martin did put on all these other, Martin did put on Tracy Morgan and he did have Brag Midnight showing up on the show and that made him blow up. And it was just, there was a lot, I think, in this in this reunion that I enjoyed as a Martin fan. It's like one of my, it's like my family's favorite show. Like when we get together, we do Martin trivia. We have the card game. <laughs> it's like Martin trivia. And so it just felt good, I think, to reconvene and to remember, um, yeah, everything and anything about Martin, man. There's a small funeral in here for Tommy who passed. I, I really love that aspect of it, too. A lot of reunion shows might not do that. They'll give, like, a quick, like, video montage, you know what I mean, of the person. But they were like, nah, bro, we having a ceremony for our boy. And I really love that aspect about it, too. I love them being able to recall of and see all these guest appearances and people pop up that that, that you remember was on the show, man. It was it was really dope. Um to watch so if anybody you know loves martin as much as me and my family do i think i absolutely recommend this this reunion show for sure yeah and i just saw that it's it's on hbo max now um so it's a little bit more widely available if you don't subscribe to bet plus but yeah martin's a seminal show and i'm just glad that a lot of these black sitcoms of our youth are getting these opportunities to reunite the cast you know we talked about the fresh prince of bel-air reunion show and how emotional that was and so like now Mm -hmm. martin coming back this is something i still got to watch myself but it's just good to have these moments to celebrate something that you know, we've gotten quite far away from it. It's It's been 30 years, and so it's mm-hmm. easy to forget. But, like, Martin was super important. And, and Martin, you know, also, along with The Fresh Prince, like, that that paved the way for, like, a new generation of black sitcoms. Like, you don't necessarily get maybe the Jamie Foxx show without Martin mm-hmm. and The Fresh Prince. You know, I think that yeah. a lot of that stuff was, was really just important for the time that they came out with. Uh, the last thing we're going to talk about before we wrap up with the with all of our catch-up is Atlanta and, and season four and the fact that we got the final episodes. Uh, we had talked about the first two episodes when they premiered on FX, but we got the remainder of the season, of course, the final season of Atlanta, which we've talked a lot about, and just the series finale and how it all wrapped up. And uh, I just want to say... I, Atlanta has been in a really interesting place in 2022, just in the context <laughs> that it exists with. It's it's not the same show that it used to be. It doesn't have the same fanfare. It doesn't even have the same love and support that it used to back in 2016 or 2018 right. with seasons one and two. But I still think from a quality perspective, it's still one of the best and most sharply written and smartest shows on TV. And I think just the way that they ended season four is kind of a testament to that. Um, I, I don't want to go necessarily to, into too many details about what happened, but mm-hmm. I think overall the thing that I loved the most, by the time we got to the season finale, just the fact that they resisted every possible urge to veer into the territory of what a series finale, quote unquote, should be, the fact that they resisted all of those urges and didn't do any of that shit is yeah. just a testament to the type of show that Atlanta is. They stayed true, true to themselves. They did not go away from what made them you know, one of the, I think, best and most revered shows on TV. And they just kind of kept it real throughout the entire time. There's a lot of commentary, of course. There's a lot of strange, surreal shit that happens. There's a lot of inexplicable moments. But I think that that series finale was really poignant because I just sat there and watched it. I'm like, yeah, it's appropriate that they went out this way. It's appropriate Mm -hmm. that they don't give you the easy answers. It's appropriate that they don't even really address the fact that this is it. Like, they never really 
tackle that. They just go in a different direction and still like impart some sort of messaging or idea upon you to think about. And uh, I think it's challenging nature is why it's always going to be just like held up, at least in my mind, is like one of the best shows we've ever gotten. Uh, wholeheartedly, I really believe that. And season three had its ups and its and it's downs and it was really challenging and and often frustrating but season four still kind of continued along that along that you know mm -hmm. sort of path and I, i'm i'm kind of appreciative of it in the moment it's it's frustrating at times but the further and further i get away from it the more i think about it i'm like no we kind of needed that we we need somebody to come in and just shake the table and not do anything like we've ever seen before i do just have to quickly point out the goofy movie episode got to what <laughs> What 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 is that? What what on earth would possess anybody to think of that concept? Because it is partly just completely confounding, but also somewhat brilliant at the same time. And that's just what that's what makes Atlanta just unlike anything else on TV because of their ability to really think outside the box and give us stuff that we, I mean, we couldn't even really conceptualize. But it's it's things we talk about. Mm -hmm. but then they blow it up into an idea where it's like yo y'all took it to the to the next level that i just never could have dreamed of so donald glover just brilliant genius guy this is not going to be the last time we talk about him on the show today but man it, it was it was really it was a really enjoyable experiment and i'm i'm sad to see it go but i'm of course happy that they got to end it on their own terms man that goofy episode was so well done that people believed it, <laughs> it it's that well put it's together that it feels that real good it's that well put together that i know people that was like i was like no bro like that's not that that's not really what happened like, like of I course that didn't happen come like, on that's, <laughs> but that's how that's that's just how atlanta is man that's how good they can bring us into worlds honestly and be like what the fuck is going on here is this is this really happening man what a show man what a time it's been to be to live in the age of atlanta man it will forever forever and ever be one of my favorite shows i've ever watched man to be able to constantly have me puzzled over and over and over like what the hell is going on here whether it's the i mean it's just so much man the crank that killer episode this season the fucking d'angelo shit that happened this season there's just so many like things that i love that i can talk to other people about and we all go okay no but what the fuck though and but there's there's always some kind of commentary that can come out of it. It makes it so interesting for me. You talk about that last episode, man. Again, no spoilers, but it's it's so to me it's so well done cuz it's like you talk about it being a fitting ending. It just fit. It just something about it just made sense, although it also made none. You know what I mean? It was like, yeah. <laughs> I get that. Like in 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 that way it did feel like an ending. And so it they it's like they didn't address it and did. It's like how are y'all teetering this line so well i don't know how you're doing it but they absolutely did it man um i'm gonna miss it i really am they're all in different places in their lives now so part of me is like this is a really cool i think send off that which is also kind of speaks to the way the last at the ending of the last episode went down it's like it does kind of feel like a send off in that way like we're happy <laughs> you know what i mean like we're i don't know how to explain it we're all moving on kind of type thing is kind of what it what it felt like in some ways but i absolutely loved every bit of it man no matter how challenging it was no matter how many questions it 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 it, it raised it really was what it meant to to look at a surrealist version of what the black experience is and i will always appreciate the show for that man i'll again i'll absolutely miss it and uh yeah man just what a way to end off just shout out to donald glover and shout out to hero mirai too the dude is dude is nuts man um so yeah 
certainly can't wait to see what everybody does next but that's it folks those are all the things we had to catch up with we had a lot of tv shows documentaries movies that we just wanted to quickly address before we signed off for the year of two black nerds but we are not done yet we got some news to also catch up with just the final few items to talk about before we officially wrap here there have been a lot of trailers 2023 is on the horizon so of course all the big movie studios all the streaming services are actively starting to promote and market their upcoming projects and so we got a lot to get through quickly here first First up, just want to quickly acknowledge and mention the Gen V trailer, which is going to be the spinoff show from Amazon Prime's The Boys, which is currently filming season four. But this is a spinoff series, which is going to focus on college age superheroes, soups in the world of The Boys as they start to figure out their powers and hopefully get a shot at possibly becoming a part of the Vault International family. The Boys is one of my favorite TV shows currently on. Spoiler alert, it will make it into my top 10 TV series of the year. When they <laughs> announced Gen V, I was super excited. I'm like, oh, this is great. Like, let's focus on some younger soups and see like how they grow up and try to figure this whole mm -hmm. thing out. And now we got a trailer. We don't know when in 2023 it's coming out, but I heard possibly that it might run concurrently with The Boys season four, which if it does, that's going to be insane. A lot that, of boys content. That's gonna be that's gonna be like heaven for me because I can't wait. But this trailer was good. It's a quick look. It's like a minute long, but it's just it's blood soaked. It's it's everything you expect out of the boys, but with younger younger people. And uh, I, I just can't wait to see what it all turns out to be. It looks like the main character, which is a black woman, her yes. ability. I don't really More know what that. it is, but it looks like she can take her and organs her in her in her intestines and use it as like weapon. I don't know what's going on here. It's it's a lot to explain and figure out, but. It looks great. Sign me up. I'm here for it. I can't wait. Anything the boys, I'm I'm totally on board for. Nah, man. There's so much blood going around this thing. Pretty sure she like strangled somebody with her large intestines <laughs> in that damn trailer, man. But it's it it looks like everything we we've gotten out of the boys and we want out of the boys, man. They even they keep showing that damn Muppet too. It's like, yep, we're gonna do some ridiculous <laughs> Muppet shit here, uh, as well, in case you didn't notice. So I I'm just I'm just so excited to watch it, man. Like you said, it's 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 Gen V college. Just give it to me now. In, inject inject it into my veins. I'm ready to go, man. Thousand percent. The next one up, we just got a quick teaser for Scream Six, which is coming out in March of 2023. Very very short teaser. What we now know about the movie is that it's set in New York City because we're following our heroes as they go off to college after the events of Scream Five. Uh, Nev Campbell is not going to be returning, which has been sort of noted, and we talked about it on the podcast. There were some ne negotiation breakdowns, but they are getting back a lot of the new generation cast as well as some of the legacy characters. Courtney Cox is coming back. A few other mm -hmm. people are coming back, and it's going to be set in New York, which is very different for this franchise because most of these movies have taken place in Woodsboro, you know, small towns. Scream mm -hmm. Two was on like a college campus, but now. Like New York, Manhattan, the big city. Like this is this is new territory. So we're taking Ghostface out of his out of his known environment. And um, you know, this quick trailer just kind of gave a tease of you know what's what's to come. Um, you and I have talked. I, I know a little bit more about this movie, but won't reveal it because I think the best is yet to come. There's some stuff that they haven't revealed in this initial trailer that is going to be very interesting for the future sort of progress of this franchise. I'm actually excited about this now because of how different it, I think it's going to feel than the other Scream movies because. You can only do Woodsboro so much, you know, and just like going back to that same old thing. And the last movie, I think what it did a good job at is like tying the first film and the legacy of that to this new generation of people. Like mm -hmm. it's a very direct connection. Now this new one can kind of just like put that baggage behind it and just take it into a new direction. But I think it's interesting because I don't know if we've had a slasher movie and, and correct me if I'm wrong. Maybe I'm missing something. I don't know if we've had a slasher movie take place in Manhattan 
since Jason takes Manhattan, like part eight of Friday mm. the 13th. That's like the last big slasher movie I can remember taking place in like a big city environment. I could be dead ass wrong on that, but that's why this felt so different to me in watching this trailer. But uh, what did you think about this? Are you excited for Scream 6? How do you feel about just what we saw so far? Man, I thought the trailer was brilliant. Um, if you're telling us you're taking Scream to New York City, <laughs> what better way than put put your, your main characters on a subway with, <laughs> uh, I think it's, it's it's i'm just ready to see it man i think there's about to be so much you know we talk about why even make another one in in uh, my baseline always is you gotta have something else to do and you gotta have something else to talk about and for me watching the trailer us talking about it i think they have that you know um and that's what makes me excited any new idea i think makes me excited one other thing that just really makes me excited about this is the actresses that are involved it's just like really like this cool upcoming really beasts you know what i'm saying between melissa barrera jenna ortega jasmine savoy brown like before i i i finally did do my watch of uh uh what is it yellow jackets i finally like it's just cool that like now these people have done are recontextualizing my mind they have more work under their belt now they're coming back it's like oh yeah it's time to get it's time to get to work so i love that aspect as well man i think it's going to be amazing ghostface i will say is going to become a bodega boy. Just wait and see. He will be a bodega boy. This is going to be some New York shit. I'm promising y'all. It's going it to be some, some real fun stuff. So I can't wait to see it. Another trailer we got to catch up with that debuted a couple of weeks ago at the Brazil Comic Con is the first trailer for Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, which we also got the confirmation of the title. We've just been calling it Indiana Jones 5 or Indy 5. Uh, this, is, this is going to be the last Indiana Jones movie with Harrison Ford coming back you know, as the the really iconic hero that we've been living with for the better part of 45 years at this point, I think. Mm -hmm. James Mangold is directing, which is also a first. Steven Spielberg directed those first four Indiana Jones movies, but a new flavor and a new style is coming in here, and we got a lot of action. Um, we got the introduction of, of, of a couple of new characters, most notably Phoebe Waller-Bridge is going to be a part mm -hmm. of this film as well. I gotta say, overall, I, I, I like the trailer a lot. It, it gave me a lot of action, which you expect out of an indie film. The only thing I will say is... I'm a little nervous about it, but I shouldn't be because it's James Mango, credible director. But Indiana Jones is just known for its practical effects. The movies have always been just like so grounded in practical effects, real shit. Kingdom of the Crystal Skull got away from that a lot. I just rewatched those movies and Kingdom of the Crystal. It gets worse every time I watch it. I'm just like, what the fuck <laughs> happened with this movie? There's so much goofy stuff happening in it. And the, and the goofiest things for me are a lot of the the CG heavy things that they introduce. And it just, mm. in, the indie's never been that. It's been very much uh, grounded, I should say, in just really practical reality-based effects. And and this one, there were a few moments where I'm like, okay, you know, we're, we're, there's a lot of CGI here. There's going to be some de-aging as well of indie, which, you know, you might feel differently about that. Your mileage may vary. But I'm still holding out hope again because it is James Mangold. His track record speaks for itself. He's coming off of Ford v. Ferrari, a movie we reviewed on this podcast a few years ago. So I'm just hopeful that we can give the appropriate send-off to Harrison Ford that he deserves. And if if it's anything to judge it by, what he said at the D23 Expo earlier this year, he said he's incredibly proud of it. So that gives me that gives me hope that it'll still be a great film. So I'm just hoping hoping that 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 it is worthy of of who who he is and and what he's brought to this role over the years. Yeah, I don't really have too much to add to that. I, I echo all those sentiments. Um, shout out to Phoebe Waller Bridge. I haven't seen her in anything in a while, so I'm glad to see that she finally is getting getting some moments. Um, I think in the spotlight, but. 
man, like you said, I just want them to to remember who Indiana Jones is, <laughs> to remember what the franchise is, and to just be that, to be honest. In a lot of ways, Indiana Jones is a very like simple concept, but it can be magical every time if you let it. And you talk about Crystal Skull, that stuff just felt less magical probably because it was less practical like some of that stuff I, I just always remember going to like Universal Studios and stuff like that there's always you hear the music and it's always the boulder and it's always that's what Indiana Jones is it's the moment where he's you know trying to switch out shit and it's an adventure that's really all it is and that's all you have to be you don't have to do too much um and so yeah I'm, I'm also just hoping it's a good send-off but still looking forward to it for sure I'm, I'm pretty excited for it actually yeah. Um, another franchise coming back, Transformers Rise of the Beasts, which is a project we've known a while about. Um, we've talked about it before in the podcast once we found, found out casting information. We finally got a f- first trailer for it. This is going to be the first Transformers movie since Bumblebee, which came out in 2018, I believe. This is also going to be somewhat of a prequel film. It's taking place in the 90s. Uh, we got a first look at it with this trailer. A lot of it's going to take place in Manhattan, but it will also be sort of a world adventure taking place across a couple of different countries. You know... I love Beast Wars. That's what got me into Transformers as a kid. That was my Transformers. That's what made me become aware of any of these characters, Optimus Prime and Megatron. And a lot of Beast Wars is sort of in the premise of this movie. So for that reason, I am looking forward to it because like we're finally tapping into the Transformers that made me a fan as as a young kid. The thing is, this franchise has been, I mean, the spottiest franchise maybe in in recent memory i mean i I really enjoy bumblebee i think that that's a a legitimately good movie and it's it's kind of perplexing that they never made a follow-up to it i thought that Mm -hmm. everything that they did in bumblebee mostly worked but those other those other films from michael bay man listen look they they just look they they just aren't great i mean the first one has its merits the third one has a few things that i like about it but overall it just just too much you know so i'm hoping that this new direction this new cast and what they're trying to do here is is enjoyable i think it will be you know anthony ramos is in it and i I really enjoy a lot of the stuff that he does dominique fishback is also co-starring so there are things to like about it but hugely cautiously optimistic for this because with a transformers (laughs) film you you never really know you know it can either go in a very positive direction like a bumblebee or it could go extremely bad like the last night which is just a train wreck it's an awful film so I just gotta. Ha- I just have to see it. You know, I can't really make too many judgments off of it until we get it next June. Yeah, I. It's been a while since I've been really like excited for a Transformers movie. I have to say, the first Transformers. I'm I'm guilty, man. I love that movie. I love the first Transformers. It's something. I only had a certain amount of DVDs at a certain amount of time. I just kept popping that thing in. It was that Iron Man, Avatar, just a couple of DVDs we had. I kept popping it in. So I actually do have a connection to the first Transformers. But outside of that, it's Rocky, man. It really is Rocky Road for for the world of Transformers. Um, and as someone, again, I've you, you know me, man. I've, of course I love Beast Wars. Shoot, I've loved Transformers, the movie, like the original animated movie. I love, I just, I, I just love Transformers. But... I haven't been in a territory where I've been interested. I still, as as critically acclaimed as actually Bumblebee is, I still haven't watched it yet. I've been meaning to, but it's just, it left a, such a sour taste in my mouth for so long, the other Transformers films that I had just had yet to, to get back into that world. But man, this trailer, I like it, man. I do. I mean, Optimus Primal is here. There's RC. Like, I don't know. There's a lot of cool characters 
in in the world of Transformers that's popping up now and interactions that I actually can't wait to see because of Beast Wars. Um, and I think they might have something on their hands if done right. Um, not only that, we know that CGI and visual effects is kind of in a good place right now. You know what I mean? Every, Of course, every movie doesn't work. Every studio doesn't work. But Transformers... Really, a lot of it was a story. The CGI was always pretty decent in a lot of these films. And so hopefully they give us something here where the visual effects can match the story and vice versa. Because that's that's really all you have to do. And so I'm looking forward to it. Like you said, Anthony Ramos is here. Ron Perlman is, is Optimus Primal. I think that's amazing. Dominique Fishback is here. Um, yeah, I, I think they have a makings to be something great. But now it's just time for the movie to come out and for us to see if it's, if it actually lives up to it. So we'll have to see. Hope so. Um, next July, we got the first trailer for Barbie, starring Margot Robbie and Ryan Gosling, which, small, small teaser, but I thought pretty brilliant. They just pay tribute to 2001 A Space Odyssey. Very cool move to just make Barbie this larger-than-life figure, which <laughs> Barbie as an IP is larger than life. You know, it's been around for so long. Uh, I think Margot Robbie can do anything at this point. She's just that talented. She's one of my favorite actresses working, and so I'm actually excited yeah. to see this, even though I'm not probably necessarily the target demographic for a Barbie movie, but there's just great people attached to it. Greta Gerwig, great director. Ryan Gosling, really love him as a star. Issa Rae is in this as well. Simu yeah. Liu is coming back, you know, after having really massive success with Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. So I thought this trailer itself was really creative, you know, to just make her feel like this larger than life character, make her feel really historic as, as, as Barbie deserves to sort of be treated as. And hopefully it's just a fun movie. And it looks like there's musical numbers and great costumes and really bright, vivid cinematography. It should be a fun time. Yeah, no, I think so, too, man. It's funny. One of the, my favorite things on the Internet is like, imagine if this became a horror film. I, I love that. <laughs> That's great. I can it's, see it, actually. No, no, I can see it. I, I actually love that idea. I know it's not going to be, but I love that idea, man. Uh, it has all the makings to be great, to be honest. It has the the actors, the directors, the writers. I mean, really, again, this is another one of the movies. It's like, yeah, just we'll just wait to see when it comes out. But if you like, it's one of those movies I would not be surprised by success critically when it comes out. Um, it just has all the pieces, man. So I'm absolutely looking forward to it. Greta Garwig, she's gonna do what she does, man. Um, she's been in this industry so long between her being an actress and now the movies, a couple movies she's made have also been pretty critically acclaimed. Like, it's just just one of those things. It's like, yeah, I think everyone understands it. This pro movie's probably going to be pretty decent. So I'm just waiting to, to see what she uh, actually brings us on the big screen. No doubt. Uh, the next one we got to talk about is Oppenheimer, Christopher Nolan's next movie, which is going to be coming out next July as well. Actually, the same day as Barbie. Barbie and Oppenheimer drop on July 21st. Talk about counter-programming. Um, Chris Nolan, I, I, I will say... His past few movies have disappointed me actively. He used to be my favorite director, and then he made some stuff that I just I couldn't <laughs> connect with that much. And I'm just like, what's going on here? But I, I can't help but still get excited at a Chris Nolan movie. His marketing and his team behind him are just fucking brilliant. They get you excited for his movies a year out. We got trailers in IMAX at certain screenings that we would go to back in July, a full year before this movie came out. But now we have an official trailer that's just dropped right before this podcast. But there was also a special preview of this movie they played right before Avatar The Way of Water, which actually had like a scene from the movie and some different clips that they didn't include in the trailer. I gotta say, I'm just I'm 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 totally in and I'm interested. The fact that he's like telling this epic historical drama about J. Robert Oppenheimer, you know, one of the creators of the atomic bomb, you know, it's 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 really interesting to see a story that's gonna be told about a moment in time of just pure ingenuity and pure brilliance and how that's also connected to one of the 
most well-known atrocities that humans have ever committed, mm-hmm. you know, and I think that that, that ju- juxtaposition of those two ideas is going to be really, really intriguing to tackle, and, and Killian Murphy in this movie is the lead playing Oppenheimer. I mean, he might be going for an Oscar just based off of, like, what the trailer showed. Like, he, this might be his performance, and, you know, people know him and have seen his face. He's worked with Chris Nolan for a long time and has been in Peaky Blinders, but this might be a definitive role for him if, if it's that good, if they can live up to the story, but this cast associated with this film is also insane i mean i don't i don't know how anybody can have a big part in this movie because there's so many people attached to it one of those exclusive scenes was a a sit down between killian murphy and and matt damon and and matt Mm -hmm. damon wasn't anywhere really to be found in the trailer itself so there's a ton of star power in this movie that i can't wait to see and hopefully it just delivers and i've been waiting for a chris nolan movie to really like get me excited again and so i'm I'm glad that you know he's now delivering this film and it's also notable because he's not working with warner brothers anymore he left them Mm -hmm. to go to universal because of the HBO day and day debacle that happened a couple of years ago that he was very, very upset about. And he decided to pack his bags and go to another studio across town. So we'll see what happens. Man, the cast of this movie is nuts. Uh, it's, it's just crazy to be like, damn, you got all those people. But who else but Chris Nolan, man? Um, I'm absolutely excited for it. The only other time that he's done something historical like this was Dunkirk. And it's just crazy to think. Because, you know, usually whatever Christopher Nolan is making is usually something ridiculous. Not necessarily in a bad way, but you know what I mean? It's always something, a bigger idea. It's always Inception. It's always Tenet. The fucking movie's backwards. You know what I'm saying? It's always something it's sci-fi, crazy. sci-fi. It's fantasy. Sci-fi. You know, all these things. Exactly. And so to see him be like, no, this is this historical thing. I'm like, huh. Oh, really? And for everyone to be on the internet talking about some, no, nah, this dude is trying to recreate the fucking bomb <laughs> and literally actually recreate the bomb no cgi included it's so christopher nolan it's like of course he would try to do stuff like that this makes a ton of sense so i mean on, on that regard i'm excited i still really like christopher nolan he wasn't on the the pedestal i, I put him on back in the day i mean there was a moment it was like dark knight inception he was just my favorite di- director for a while and then he didn't necessarily, I don't think, fall, fall off as hard as, for me as he did for you, but it's still not the same feeling as I once had for him, for sure. Um, but I'm still very much excited to see this. I think it's crazy how far ahead they started promoting this movie. I mean, there's countdowns in the lobby of the movie theater. <laughs> like, <laughs> and they're date started, accurate, too. Like, they're date actually accurate. date accurate. That shit was like eight months, 17 days, <laughs> nine hours. I'm like, oh, my God, this is crazy. But it, it, I love that. I love the clock of it all, right? I love that he has a theme here, the countdown, the what it means for a bomb to explode at what time. It's just like, yep. yes, do that shit, Christopher Nolan. Absolutely. So I'm very much looking looking forward to, to it. I think Killian Murphy's going to kill it. I never heard him speak a, a lick of English dialect, American dialect in my life. So to hear that, I was like, oh, yep, you might be right. Maybe he is going for an Oscar or something here. But I'm very excited to watch it. Definitely. Um, and we didn't get an, necessarily a new trailer for this next movie, but we, we have to talk about it because of how insane it is. But Mission Impossible Dead Reckoning Part 1 is also coming out next July. And to promote the movie, Tom Cruise has been just actively dropping stuff ahead of Avatar The Way of Water. They showed an exclusive IMAX behind the scenes sneak peek of the movie's biggest stunt that they're going to be, you know, sort of un- un- unveiling when the when the movie releases. But they also just dropped it online for everybody to watch, which is actually an extended look. The version that they showed in IMAX was about four minutes. This this new updated version is like 10 minutes long. This is also coming after like a day where Tom Cruise dropped the video of him free falling out of a helicopter, thanking fans for watching <laughs> Top Gun Maverick for this year and wishing everybody a happy holidays. And he follows it up with this crazy, insane motorcycle stunt. I mean, dude. 
there there's the heights that he's reached as 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 a movie star as a filmmaker are just really unprecedented now the the stuff that he's willing to go through i love the headlines that that people drop like watch tom cruise try to kill himself repeatedly after just (laughs) dropping you know jumping off of a motorcycle into a base jump you know it's it's just ridiculous. I mean, nobody mm-hmm. goes to the lengths that he goes to to entertain the audience because that's what he always says it's about is entertaining the audience. Again, this is not a real trailer, but it just has to be acknowledged that this is another machine of, of marketing to promote this movie well out in advance to get people excited. You, you can tell that they're definitely leveraging the excitement from Top Gun Maverick to lead directly into Mission Impossible. I think he's trying to he's he, he stole 2022 and he's trying to steal 2023. He's getting ahead of it. He's like, mm-hmm. this is also going to be my year. Mission Impossible will be the definitive action franchise of all time. They I think I think that they've probably surpassed Bond at this point in terms of like the recent movies, like the recent like Daniel mm. Craig movies, like they've outbonded James Bond, which is mm. crazy to think about because Mission Impossible gets so much from James Bond, yeah. but the stuff he's doing here is unparalleled. It's it's kind of crazy to see just everything he's willing to go through to make us to make us happy as fans. Yeah, we're we're watching a psycho in real time, man. It is it is absolutely a treat. I'm just happy I'm here alive to see Tom Cruise as a person exist because he's just ridiculous, bro. Um, that 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 IMAX look of him literally jumping off of a motorcycle into and free falling is it's just nuts, man. It just you've never seen it before. No actor has actually ever done it before shit i'm sure some stuntman evil knievel has nothing on tom cruise like it's this dude is just absolutely ridiculous he's a he's a thrill seeker and it records it it's really what it is um and somehow the movies still end up good afterwards it's like damn you did all that and then the story's decent <laughs> how do we get here i don't know but it's it's just enjoyable man i can't wait to see this movie because i know he's he the people a lot of people are talking about today are constantly people who try to one up themselves. James Cameron always tries to one up himself. Um, Christopher Nolan, regardless of how we feel about him right now, always tries to one up himself. Tom Cruise, man, is absolutely one of those people. And even after watching Top Gun, regardless of what happened there, after watching Mission Impossible Fallout, regardless of what happened there, I know I'm about to sit down in this theater and be like, no, nah, this dude's really tripping. Like for the 18th time, <laughs> like no, this dude is crazy, and I just really can't wait to see it, man. So I'm I'm very excited for for Dead Reckoning Part One. And fucking Chris McQuarrie, the director of this franchise, now it, it frightened me. His final words, he said, "The only thing that scares me more about this stunt is what we have planned for eight. And I'm just like, "Yo, come on! <laughs> How do you end with that? It's like the perfect mic drop ending. Like they're gonna do something even more ridiculous and insane for the final Mission Impossible movie. You you just love to see it." The last trailer we're going to talk about, Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse, which I know we're both incredibly excited about, is coming out next June. This is supposedly like a part one of a two-part story. Um, Spider-Man Beyond the Spider-Verse is going to be coming out in March of 2024, as it's currently dated. But now we finally have an extended trailer to get a better sense of this movie. Um, There was a lot of flashback stuff here, you know, sort of hearkening back to the first film. I will say that it was... It was a decent trailer, but you could tell that they're holding a lot back. You could tell that there's a lot of stuff that they're just not revealing. Um, Most notably, I would say that we didn't really get a sense of is just the different animation styles that they're going to tap into that we've heard about. They didn't really lean into that for this trailer, which I'm happy about because you don't want to you don't want to show your hand too early. But what they did show us. There's a fuck ton of Spider-Mans walking around this movie just like all over the place. There was the Spider-Man from the Insomniac video games. There were other ones from animated series. And we also know Spider-Man 2099, I believe, which is going to be voiced by Oscar Isaac, had a big presence in this movie. And, And 
it, it's 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 intriguing because I don't want to call him a villain. He's not going to be a villain. It's a Spider-Man at the end of the day, but he might be the central antagonist in this movie, which I don't mm-hmm. I don't know if I anticipated, but you can tell every everything isn't all good. He seems like he's going to be going directly against Miles Morales and and and, and company, and and possibly be like one of the central figures as as an antagonist in this movie and he's also swole as fuck like he's jacked like what's going on here uh how did you feel about this trailer you know everything you saw and does this make you even more excited for the movie ah man absolutely i i think you know how much you do and don't show in a trailer is is dependent a lot of times on what your expectations are and i love that because now the first into the spider-verse is so beloved that like people are already on board you know what i'm saying you don't have to show me the world in order to get me on board so i do love that they held a decent amount back here i love i actually love that quick moment between him and rio by the way why did they make rio like such a fine looking cartoon character it's crazy um but like I, I love that moment between him and rio man it's just like i love that they're still focusing on the character of it all of what of the miles of it all because that's what makes Sp- Spider-Man great is us being able to connect with him. And so you can tell they're still trying to uh, uh, make sure they have that going into the film. And so uh, seeing all these Spider-Man cameos, I loved it, man. You can see like the original Spider-Woman in it. I think uh, you can see uh, uh, the Peter that we knew. I think he had a baby. Like <laughs> it's a lot going on, I think, um, in this in in, the, in that quick, you know, short glimpse we see. But 2099, man, that dude is huge. I don't know why they made him so buff in this movie, but they did. <laughs> um, and he's scary, man. He's he's scary to see, and scary to see uh, uh, somebody coming after you that looks like that. I don't know who the villain's going to be. It very well may be him. Uh, he could be a red herring for somebody else for another different. I think it will be a spider of some sort. I don't know which one it is per se yet. I think it will for sure, though. I, but regardless, it still looks good. Um, I'm very excited for it. I think they're going to give us everything we've been asking for. Absolutely. I'm a bit nervous about 2023. This schedule that we just ran through, it's a packed year. And I really Mm -hmm. hope that these things have room and opportunity to breathe, to be successful. Because if you just look at this, Transformers Rise of the Beast, June 9th, Indiana Jones and the Dial of Destiny, June 30th. Spider-Man Across the Spider-Verse is June 2nd. So Mm -hmm. that's all in June. July, you have Mission Impossible on the 14th, Barbie and Oppenheimer on the same day on the 21st. Mm. Like it's 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 a really packed summer so that you know it makes sense why all these trailers are dropping but we'll have to see just like the fortunes and how these you know ultimately perform because it's going to be a very very crowded summer movie season but in the world of spider-verse news we just found out something before the weekend that is kind of interesting and and, and somewhat perplexing i would have to say but (laughs) donald glover is attached to star in and produce a feature film that's going to be set in the sony spider-man marvel universe that they've developed over there with movies like morbius and venom Mm -hmm. and he's going to be making a movie about the hypno hustler which is (laughs) a very obscure (laughs) spider-man villain which if you can't tell by the name is absolutely from the 70s uh if you don't know about the hypno hustler he made his debut in 1978 in marvel comics the villain is known for being a musician and he has a band called the Mercy Killers and essentially they go around performing at different nightclubs and different stages and they ultimately use some sort of hypnosis technology to rob people and steal their money. Uh, yeah, Donald Glover is going to star <laughs> in this movie. He's also producing, but they also have 
the son of Eddie Murphy, Miles Murphy, who's going to be apparently writing the script for this film. Um, again, as I noted, this is this is set in the Sony Spider-Man universe of movies that they're making, which already has notable spinoffs attached to it of different villains. Craven the Hunter is going to be coming out next October. We heard about the El Muerto movie with Bad Bunny that's going to be coming out in January of 2024. Madam Web, they've been filming that this year. That's going to come out in yeah. February of 2024. So they are full steam ahead on developing a suite of films really centered on Spider-Man antagonists and villains. But the Hypno Hustler might be the most obscure that I've never, ever heard of before. I, I got to admit, I'm not, I'm not, you know, capping with y'all at all. I've never heard of this character before in my life. You know, this is, this is really scraping the bottle of the barrel, you know, for, for, for notable IB and characters. But what do you think about this? What do you think about this character, you know, sort of being at the forefront of a film, Donald Glover as being the talent attached to it. How do you feel about this new project? You know, um, as a character that nobody knows, it's, it's, I mean, that's a thing in itself. It's like, who the fuck is Hypno Hustler? But the more you think about it, the more you think who's playing Hypno Hustler, who Hypno Hustler is as a character. It's like, this is interesting. There might be something here, man. This is a character who's the lead singer of a band. Oh, wait, who's attached to the character? Childish Gambino, Donald Glover, the guy that made Awaken My Love, who can probably give us some musical moments throughout this this movie. I... I think I'm on board, man. I think I'm, I'm I still have to see a, a bunch, of course, for sure. But as a concept, I love how crazy and wacky that it already feels. I love that it's literally this dude who's a, a, a singer by day and be stealing shit with his hypnosis by nighttime or whatever, however it works. You know what I mean? I, I think I think it's a pretty cool idea. So I I have to see what more happens, but I'm all for it, to be honest. It seems like something that I'd like secretly be into like this black character is just out here singing that becomes a villain. I don't know. It just sounds like uh, uh, something we've never really seen before that could turn into something really cool. If done correctly, really again, to me, the character sounds good. I love that it's been playing by Donald Glover. I think he's going to be, he's going to be singing in the movie, this and that it's really the story that can provide around it. That's going to tell me if I should really be here or not. Um, so whenever this gets developed, whenever that first trailer comes out, I think that's going to be the indicator of like, mm, we're onto something or maybe I should have left this in the vault. You know, I, I definitely gave props to the El Muerto idea about what they're doing with Bad Bunny on that movie. Bad Bunny, big wrestling fan, also Latinx superstar. So we're bringing those two worlds together to give this really creative popular person his own sort of project it's the same concept here notably for all the things you said donald glover musician writer creator you know very much a mm -hmm. a, a, a genius in that respect and so coming onto the project with this particular character makes a lot of sense it's, it's also interesting because since the hypno hustler is so just obscure you can really interpret him any way you want to there's not really anything holding you back from doing anything because people won't have these preconceived notions so i think i think a part of that is 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 good here with the intentions on developing this movie but fuck i gotta be honest this is a strange strange choice the hypno hustler it's a weird one i that <laughs> The hypno hustler. I just even saying it aloud, I'm just like, yo, this is this is this is gonna be interesting. I, it, it sounds like <laughs> it sounds like a villain of the week, you know, like like those old mm -hmm. like serial seventy. This week's Spider Man villain, the hypno hustler, <laughs> and he's robbing all the people in Manhattan. It's like I I, I don't know, man. There's there's a lot that they have to prove here. Uh, they they really are they really are trying to make something of these antagonists mm -hmm. and and going to just like 
the 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 complete unknowns and and turning it to something that's hopefully interesting and, and profitable for them and, and something that people are are excited about. I, I love Donald Glover and I do trust him, but but a part of me is 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 a little concerned just about the mm-hmm. the nature of. Okay, so anybody gets a movie, it, just any character. It's it, it's in comics, cool. So we just greenlight it. We're we're gonna give it a go. I do want to quickly ask you. This complicates things. Donald Glover mm-hmm. was in Spider Man Homecoming. He yep. was teased as yep. Uncle Miles, who we know becomes Whoa. the Prowler. Mm-hmm. What what happens with that? Does anything happen with that? Was that just like a nice thing that they included that they'll never revisit? That that does that complicate it and, and preclude him from ever coming back to that particular side of the universe because he's gonna be in this other Sony Spider Man universe? What do you make of that? Maybe maybe there's some weird long term plan where this is the same character. I don't know. <laughs> maybe the hypno hustler, Spider Man's uncle. Like maybe they were like, uh, Spider Burst just did Prowler. Oh God. Maybe, maybe we can't do Prowler again because I don't know if you can do Uncle Aaron any better than Spider Burst did it. True. And 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 now if they ever want to introduce Miles and they did put in you know Uncle Aaron here, in my mind you just have to go well. Maybe Hypno, Hypno Hustler is the new uncle. Like, he, it is a villain. <laughs> he still is black. <laughs> but maybe when the time comes, they're like, oh, well, God. like, maybe maybe we're watching this movie. He's like, oh, yeah, here's my nephew, Miles. And we're like, what the fuck? <laughs> how, do, how did this happen? But it's possible. That's all I'm saying. It's possible. I don't know how that works between that, but all I know is it, it definitely is possible. Maybe this character is more grounded when we, than we think he is. Uh, and so we'll just have to see, man. Oh, good grief. Well, currently on the Sony Marvel Spider-Man slate, as I mentioned, they have Craven the Hunter coming out in October. El Muerto is slated for January 2024. Madam Web is slated for February 2024. And currently the undated projects, we know Venom 3 is going to be happening. Spider-Woman is still floating around there. Apparently Olivia Wilde is still attached to possibly direct that. And then the Silk Spider Society series, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, which is being sold off to Amazon Prime Video. You can now add the Hypno Hustler to that list of upcoming Sony Marvel projects. We'll have to see how it all turns out. And our other news item, God of War, as a TV series, just officially got ordered by Amazon. We talked about this a few months ago because we found out that they were actively developing a God of War TV series. But now it's officially a go. They're going to make it. It's officially ordered at Amazon. And they now have a showrunner, which is going to be Rafe, Rafe, excuse me, Rafe Juckins, who's coming over from the Wheel of Time. He'll be the showrunner of this new God of War TV series. And we also found out that it will indeed be based on the 2018 video game, which takes place in the beginning of the Norse mythology of the series. So they won't Mm -hmm. actually go back to the Greek mythology. That's not to say that those elements won't be included. There could potentially be flashbacks. Like They could still include that story because we know a lot of the 2018 video game had a lot of that material in it in, in terms mm-hmm. of Kratos referencing his past and and all that stuff that made him who he was. But we've been cir- circling around God of War a lot lately. We both just play Ragnarok. We just talk about it with the Game Awards and just the success that it's had there. And now they are moving over into the medium of TV, which, which you know we're, we're actively seeing that happen a lot with a lot of video game adaptations these days. Um, as I said, we already talked about this being a thing, so we knew it was going to happen. But what do you think specifically about the fact that they're just going to start with the 2018 video game and just kind of use that as the kicking off point for the show. Uh, I think they're just going with the times, man. Um, everything Norse really within the past six, seven years has just been it. That has just been the the age we were in. There was a moment where we were in Greece. Everybody was. God of War was out. 300 was coming out. Movies like Immortals. And we were in that world. Time has simply shifted. <laughs> Norse mythology has become the thing. Assassin's Creed Valhalla is a thing. The Northmen 
is a movie. Uh, Vikings, the TV show, is super popular. You know what I mean? There's just so much Norse things. I think they're just going with the time. I really do. Uh, uh, I can see a world where if this would have came out 10 years ago, they would have went with Greek. But because, again, it seems to be an appetite for everything that's happening in Norse mythology so much that I think that's just what they're going with. They are going with the success of their 2018 Norse mythology video game. It's just how they're doing it so i'm i'm still very much excited for it like you said i still would like a one one or two things in there that hints at kratos's past the same way that the 2018 does do that right i need to tell me somewhere in there that the manslaughter his family <laughs> that way people who don't know just know like it doesn't have to be an episode doesn't have to be a bunch but just just hit on that real quick and i'm like okay cool and then we move on to whatever you want this tv show to be and so um, I think it's a smart move. I think it makes sense. Part of me does make, miss the Greekness of it all very much on paper and in books. I'm still very much in Greek world all the time. I still very much love the Hercules and the Zeus and the Poseidon of it all. I do. There's something about it that I think we just grew up with. That I just really like that mythology. But the Norse stuff is still really cool. It's still really interesting. Um, in a world where Thor, we're talking about it in the world of Marvel is very much still a thing and it'd be cool for people bring people to their TV show. I think it makes perfect sense and I'm still looking forward to that. You know, I think that this signals to me something that you talked about when we review Ragnarok and you mentioned that you had replayed a lot of those earlier God of War games. And I think it simply boils down to the fact that those earlier games, while they were great when they came out and they almost were, you know, sort of revolutionary at that time, you know, for, for what they were able to achieve from a story perspective, there mm -hmm. isn't a ton of meat on the bone there. If we're just being yeah. completely honest about it, what they were able to do and elevate with the 2018 game, it was so heavily praised and critically acclaimed because of how deep and dense the story was. Those first games, I mean, Kratos is a bit of a one-dimensional character. He's just seeking mm -hmm. out revenge. He's angry. He's pissed. And he kills all the gods, which, you know, at that time, loved it. You know, it was, a, it was an action-adventure platformer. The 2018 game is flat out just more sophisticated, much more sophisticated. And yeah. so for that to be the starting point, I think makes a ton of sense. I think that that's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. And again, that doesn't preclude them from referencing the 28 or excuse me, all the, the previous stuff from the Greek era of the games. Of course, you have to mention the slaughter of his family. That's that's just so integral to who he is as a person and his development. And so I think it's a smart play here. You know, you can always do do flashbacks and, and use, you know, storytelling tropes to, to communicate that stuff. But in terms of what's going to get people invested and excited, Everything that happens between Kratos and Atreus from 2018 to Ragnarok is that that that's really where the heart of the story is. That's where people are going to, I think, be the most invested. So I think it's a smart choice. And in our last news item of the week and of the year for two black nerds, unfortunately, it's a bit of a funeral. But we found out at last week in the middle of last week that Henry Cavill is officially done as Superman. We were speculating a lot about the state of DC. What's what's going to stay? What's going to go? Who's going to still be around? And Henry Cavill, Superman himself, uh, will no longer be playing the character. We'll read off a couple of quick statements from Variety. In fact, I'm pulling this from, but James Gunn went on Twitter and said, quote, Peter and I have a DC slate ready to go, which we couldn't be more over the moon about. We'll be able to share some exciting information about our first projects at the beginning of the new year. The director turned label chief tweeted Wednesday evening. Among those on the slate of Superman, in the initial stages, our story will be focusing on an earlier part of Superman's life, so the character will not be played by Henry Cavill. But we just had a great meeting with Henry, and we're big fans, and we talked about a number of exciting possibilities to work together in the future. 
Sources close to D.C. tell Variety that Gunn, his co-president Peter Safran, and Cavill met recently and are all energized to find something in the comic book universe for Cavill to tackle. Cavill confirmed that he would not be reprising the role of Superman in a statement shared on Instagram. He said, quote, it's sad news, everyone. I will, after all, not be returning as Superman. After being told by the studio to announce my return back in October, prior to their hire, this news isn't the easiest, but that's life. Cavill wrote, I respect that James and Peter have a universe to build. I wish them and all involved with the new universe the best of luck and the happiest of fortunes. So that's where we are. Henry Cavill is officially done as Henry or excuse me, as Superman in, in, in the DC universe. Um, I mean, there's a lot to unpack here, actually. There, there's a lot of pieces to the story again. And, and it's funny because before we recorded last week's episode, we were just talking and, and I was, I was mentioning the DC news about Patty Jenkins, not moving forward with wonder woman three, that movie being canceled. And I remember saying to you, man, I really hope that this is the last week we get any DC news until we get the, the final rollout of the, of the new slate. Oh, how silly of me, because the very next day we found out Henry Cavill is, is hanging up the, 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 the cape of Superman. But before we move into the other pieces of this, because there's there's a few other things we do have to address on this front. What do you think about this? You know, Henry Cavill sort of finally being out after we've just been wondering about the state of his character for so many years now. There's been so much back and forth. Will he? Won't he come back? Will he be Superman? Does DC or Warner Brothers actually fuck with Henry Cavill at this point anymore? It's just been so many questions, so much uncertainty. But now... The final stamp has been placed on this whole ordeal, and we now know that he won't be coming back. What are your thoughts on it, man? Um, it's 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 bittersweet, I guess. Uh, part of you, me, you know, has to be sad because uh, you know I just feel like he was never really given that much of a chance. You know, um, I am a guy; I do like Man of Steel. I really do like that movie, but it's 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 just one of those things where we only got that some justice league stuff and bbs stuff i don't know some stuff that didn't really feel like henry cavill could really sink his teeth in you know to a project for too much and so in that front it i think that that kind of that part makes me sad another part that makes me not necessarily sad but that just feels weird because of the nature is that is the messiness of it all you know he comes back tells he's superman and then he's like oh sorry never mind i'm not coming back as superman that itself is just like damn <laughs> okay like you got everybody excited now it's like damn uh like it's like we get it but it still hurts you know kind of type thing it's like yeah damn I, it, that's unfortunate um but i do have to understand james gunn i think and peter saffron and what they're seeking out to do and and sometimes that comes with sacrifice we talked about it kind of already you know that they they have to gut some stuff and in to me, the, with with this, makes me feel like they are going for potentially a younger cast of what is to come from the DCEU here in the future. Part of me does feel like this is, they're going new frontier you know what I'm saying? It makes me feel like they are going younger, because if you were going to go to a more mature Superman, you know, um, we'll talk about that in a second, too. We know it's not an origin story, but we do know... You know, it doesn't have to be young or, you know, it doesn't have to be old either kind of type thing. So it's it's I think that part is interesting as well. But overall, it's just bittersweet. You know, it is what it is. It's like you understand it, but it still sucks. I, I still don't can't imagine anybody right now in my mind as Superman except Henry Cavill. But I'm sure I am sure I believe in James Gunn um, that they they will find somebody 
who who fits the bill as Superman. And so that's the only worry I have now is that second casting. Cause I had I I did I put Henry Cavill on a pedestal I did I'm like this dude is Superman he looks like him acts like him the dude it's him and so now that it won't be him I have to subvert my expectations and be like okay I know it's gonna be somebody new I and I'm automatically disappointed in my mind already and I sh- I shouldn't think like that but that's just me healing <laughs> you know what I'm saying from what from the news that we've been giving so I'm waiting I'm waiting to see what they do what they come up with but again it's bittersweet. And I, I respect James Gunn and, and the decisions he's making. Yeah, it's a really bad break for Henry Cavill. He's just been fucked around for so long now. And it, it's really unfortunate. I mean, stuff like this happens in entertainment in Hollywood. Like nothing's ever really a go until it happens. Um, right. it, that, that's really the case. Like it, until you see it alive and, and like on screen, like you really can't believe. And, and you know, it sucks that just a month ago. He comes back, has the post-credit scene in Black Adam, which I have a lot of thoughts actually about the Rock and the Black Adam situation. But that's a There's piece a of it where there, 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 there was there was guidance and direction that was given to him by people that weren't James Gunn and Peter Safran. You know, all of that stuff happened before they officially took over. So they have to come in and now clean up the mess that was set before them and, and make some really tough decisions. So I do feel bad for Henry Cavill because, as you said, he never got the chance that I think he should have gotten. I will say, you know, now that we can like actively just kind of move on and accept it for what it mm-hmm. is. There is a trilogy there that Henry Cavill was a part of. There is Man of Steel, BVS, and I would say Zack Snyder's Justice League. Now, certainly, very, very flawed on a lot of respects, but I'm actively a fan of Man of Steel, and I really like Zack Snyder's Justice League. And BVS, Mm -hmm. Ultimate Edition at least, has some merit to it. So now I can just like sort of accept that as my Henry Cavill Superman trilogy, even Mm -hmm. though he was sort of shortchanged throughout that story as well. Would have liked to see one more opportunity for him to get a crack at it. No doubt about it. But... You gotta you gotta blow this shit up, and I think it's very apparent now that that's what they're doing. Uh, we 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 speculated about it last week when we talked about this. Like, will they keep certain pieces? Will they just you know move out things that don't work and keep the things that do? I mean, is there any reality where this isn't just like a complete reset? Like, do you do you foresee that this that this particular move in terms of like removing Henry Cavill isn't the note for us as fans to say like they're starting from scratch, like one hundred percent tried and true? Like, this is going to be a complete reset. Oh yeah, they talking about um, our boy becoming Lobo. Yeah, he's not after this. He's not Aquaman no more. Like I don't. It's only a couple days before we hear Gal Gadot's not coming back. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it's only it's only so much time I think until then because the way Man of Steel did start it off, it feels like every franchise has a poster child, right? Imagine something's going on in Marvel in twenty sixteen. Let's say they're like, uh, Robert Downey Jr. is coming back. What? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? It feels wrong. Or you know what I mean? Or it does, in this case, it feels like a new start is happening. So I, it definitely feels super rebooty to me. I think this is the indicator that everything is about to be refreshed. There, We know he is working on a new Superman. You know what I mean? All of those things make me feel like this is a fresh start. So I'm just waiting to hear it from, from James Gunn mouth himself at the top of the year. Well, let's talk about that. Um, in Variety, they note, quote, Gunn has been working at, excuse me, Gunn has been at work on the new Superman story for some time, insiders say. The script will focus on the character's life as a cub reporter in the fictional city of Metropolis. Audiences will encounter him meeting key characters like colleague Lois Lane, insiders added. Additionally, Variety sources said that the new Gunn project will not replace the previously announced J.J. Abrams' Ta-Nehisi Coates Superman concept which is still an active development. They go on to say that Cavill isn't the only star from the DC era to sit down with Gunn and Savage. 
Saffron, Ben Affleck, who has played Batman in numerous films from the label, recently met with the pair to specifically discuss the prospect of directing an upcoming DC feature, individuals familiar with those talks said. James Gunn also had confirmed on Twitter that he met with Ben Affleck, and they said that they would be open to him directing anything that he'd like to in the future, because he is he is a very talented director. Um, how do you feel about the Superman story that Gunn is apparently writing? I, I think by this by this sort of measure and what we're being told, sounds like he's been writing this for a while. And also, is it, at all, is it at all likely that he won't direct this himself? Because Gunn, and I've watched interviews with him, he doesn't really strike me as the guy that is willing to write stuff that he's not directing. He's done that before. He wrote the Scooby-Doo movies. He wrote Dawn of the Dead. But he's noted that those experiences weren't the greatest for him because ultimately what came to screen wasn't his vision. Ever yeah. since then, he's wrote and directed all of his material. So how likely is it, do you think, that he actually ends up directing this himself? And just the thoughts on like them focusing on a younger a younger Superman and also, you know, sort of focusing on that, that reporter aspect in Metropolis and just the idea that, you know, even Ben Affleck might have an opportunity to direct something in the future. Yeah. I, 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 I do have a feeling that even though that, you know, this is the case for James Gunn that, you know, he's, he's never really, he never really gives anybody else the reins, I think to take over, um, yeah, to take over his movies. You know, you just said it. But he kind of has a new job in which he has to he's a showrunner now, right? He's a he 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 now runs the whole conglomerate that is D, the, this new DC universe. So I think there's going to be times where he has to both use his talents as a writer but also potentially give up that director's chair not only because uh, uh, you know he's he's busy, but I think I think there are aspects of James Gunn where he might have to give up the director's chair because he has something else going on. You know, maybe maybe James Gunn, maybe he feels like I don't know. He's just in a new position where I feel like he can't direct and write everything. I feel like he has to, and in some moments, use his writing skills for sure. But then he's gonna have to maybe give directing to somebody else because he has to go work on something else. You know, the, all the time he spends directing is all the time he's not spent being ahead of DC Universe. You know what I mean? Him not putting that creative work in. And so I, I just have a feeling that even though that usually is the case, I think there is still possibility for him not to direct um, this film. And, and maybe even then, what if he finds, not necessarily a director bigger than himself, right? But a, but somebody who can come in and take the reins that he just believes in a little bit more than he did some of those projects that he gave, you know, other people in the past. Maybe somebody who can, he can actually sit down with and actually talk out the vision a little bit more than he did then as well. That he has so much more experience under his belt than he used to. So I feel like there's he, he might find different avenues to get it done that doesn't require him directing. He could direct it, for sure. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm just afraid of the time that'll take away from all the other things that he's having to do under the new umbrella of his job title, you know, to be honest. And that's what I'm afraid of. We've never seen, although he, he wasn't a director really before, but we've never seen directed by Kevin Feige. You know what I'm saying? But he, I can't even imagine Kevin Feige spending months directing a film when you're running a whole conglomerate. You know what I'm saying? I can't imagine it. Um, and so I, I still have a feeling he won't direct in that regard. Um, so yeah, uh, I, I think I think he'll figure it out, even though he may be writing it. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that's the way it'll go. Well, to be fair, it is two of them. 
it's James Gunn and Peter Safran. And so I think that 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 could alleviate some of those concerns because I I will. James Gunn has also been notoriously good in my mind at multitasking because he was like working on Peacemaker and Guardians of the Galaxy 3 at the same time. He's now doing DC duties versus post-production for Guardians 3 at the same time. Of course, Mm -hmm. not apples to apples. It's it's definitely different. But I think that's why you got Peter there. You know, that's 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 the other guy. They are co-CEOs. And I would not be surprised if. Because this is also kind of a full circle moment. They DC, like when James Gunn had gotten fired from Marvel and then he went over to Warner Brothers DC, they offered him Superman and he turned it down to do the Suicide Squad. So this is kind of a full circle moment. But I wouldn't be surprised if James Gunn, as the creative force that he is, decides not only to write this movie, but to direct it as the kicking off point for their new plans. This could literally set the tone and start the universe. It's it's not that different than like a new TV series where you have the pilot and you bring in the most famous director that you can to really set the tone, set the visual pace of the series, really really create that whole aesthetic so that every mm-hmm. person thereafter has to follow that. Yeah. I could see a very similar situation here, not to say that it couldn't be otherwise, but maybe James Gunn writes and directs this, a Superman movie, that's the first movie, that's your centerpiece film, that all of this shit is built around, and then from then on, he might not direct anything else within the DC universe, you know, or he might, he might come back later, so I could see it working really both ways, I think he's capable of doing it either way, Um, but we'll have to see, whatever they do, I'm sure it will be for the best, you know, sort of situation of the studio. Now, the last thing that I do want to talk about quickly is just like, again, the state of the DC universe at this point, last week we had also talked about the cancellation of Wonder Woman. Shortly thereafter, after the recording of last week's pod, Patty Patty Jenkins released a statement clarifying the whole situation. She basically says she never walked away. She was willing to make any changes that they wanted her to make. We also found out that apparently Star Wars Rogue Squadron is still in development. Um, Mm -hmm. She she was able to strike a development deal with Disney that would allow her to finish Wonder Woman 3 and then go back to that movie. But now, you know, I guess she can just turn her attention towards Rogue, Rogue Squadron. And... All of this stuff is just happening so in, in such an interesting fashion to me because the amount of information that's either leaking or being released is is just kind of a testament to the messiness that DC has you know been for the past mm-hmm. few years. You know, you, you talked yeah. about Henry Cavill being told by the studio, "Yeah, you're coming back, so go ahead and tell everybody in the world that you're coming back," only to then have to backtrack that merely a month later. And and in addition to that, you have The Rock, Dwayne The Rock Johnson, you know all these months actively campaigning for Black Adam, saying that this new DC universe was going to be built, saying that they, they they brought Henry Cavill back for the fans, only to then, you know, kind of look, look a little dumb in the process, I would say, with just how this has all unfolded. There's just so many ways to just sort of look at just how the house has not been in order and how all of this information has gotten out. Because if we're being frank, we've never seen anything like this from Marvel in the Marvel Cinematic Universe side of things. Like, they they really control their narrative. They really have a tight grip on information that gets out now of course we hear stuff and some of it's true some of it's not true but it's never been to this degree where you have creators and actors coming out making statements patty jenkins is writing statements you got the rock working with the financiers of the studio to confirm (laughs) whether or not black adam made money which is just like that tweet that he sent out that was for me that was the most cringeworthy shit that i've ever seen i've never seen a star of a movie come out and say like yeah our movie's gonna make 50 million dollars of profit First of all, you don't spend $200 million to make $50 million. It just doesn't work that way. So I don't know how this is perceived as a win, whether or not it's making money. It's just it's just kind of silly. But now James Gunn being in charge is like actively on Twitter, which we've known him always to be. He's responding to people. He's debunking rumors. There was a rumor that 
Maybe Matt Reeves, the Batman, was going to kick off the new DCEU. He came out and said that that's entirely untrue. I mean, how do you just perceive just all of these different messages coming from so many different areas and just like mm-hmm. how how can we just get this all situated? How can we control this and make it so that it's really one narrative that's out there about DC and it's the narrative that they tell us, whether it's rightly or wrongly? You know, I think we're on our way there. I think, you know, that statement from James Gunn and Peter Saffron at the top of the year will be the statement piece needed to shut all or not most of this shit down, right? There's only a, a a couple more, you know, hanging fruit. I think that really exists between all of this mess we have going on between the Patty Jenkins stuff, between the Rock and stuff. I think it's only a matter of time before we're like, all of that has been wiped clean. That's actually why I love James Gunn and his openness on Twitter to debunk some of these things. This because I can only imagine the mess that would continue if some of these rumors continue to spin into a new article by anybody, you know, a new Hollywood reporter, a new deadline, a new variety has, I'm like, no, okay now, like what's going on? And I think this really is uh, uh, James Gunn trying to take the reins. Like he's trying to be the center person of truth. And I think that's part of the reason he has been so vocal. It's like, don't pay attention to that other shit no more. It's me. I'm here on Twitter telling you what's going on in real time. Don't look at all that other stuff no more. You know what I'm saying? And I think, and I, I think I love that lead in. I love that th- this Twitter lead in into whatever he drops at the top of the year because now it's gonna be like, okay, but why'd you listen to that? If I told you to listen to me, like I'm the I'm the showrunner here. I, this is this is me and Peter's thing. And so I I I think we are coming to a time where it's gonna get a little bit more quiet. It is gonna get a little bit more patient because all these all, all the low hanging fruit will no longer be low hanging anymore. Um, it really is figuring out these last couple movies, these last couple actors, you know, uh, and I, again, I think hopefully the statement at the top of the year addresses all these things and really gets rid of it. But it's it's been a lot going on. Uh, it has been an up and down of, of emotions. I am part of all these subreddits. Everybody just be talking all the time about <laughs> what's going on. It's like DC leaks and this. I'm like, y'all stop. Just stop it. We'll just let we're resetting. So just be patient and let let everything reset just that like it's okay and i think once everybody can get to that point which i actually think is coming sooner rather than later then we'll be we'll be well off yeah controlling the narrative has never necessarily been dc's strong suit and that's that's contributed i think greatly to their problems it's the internet chatter the stuff that people hear that might not even be true and accurate and and it is important that james gunn is doing what he's doing right now i think i would like to see him eventually do it less i don't i don't think Mm -hmm. that a co-CEO of a movie studio needs to be like mm-hmm. on Twitter debunking every rumor, but I get why he's doing it now because it is like crisis management. It's it's the transitional mm-hmm. period. So hopefully he's able to kind of step back and focus on the work at hand. Um, is Black Adam too dead in the water? Is that completely unlikely for you at this point? Like, do you do you see any reality where that gets made? Nah, that shit gone, bro. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely gone. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. That's it. I don't. I don't see it. It's gone. Yeah. It's it's completely gone for sure. I I agree. It, it's just so interesting that again, the past like six months, The Rock has been beating the drum of <laughs> the hierarchy of power in the DC universe forever changing, and and he gets this 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 cameo from Henry Cavill, but. I gotta be honest, and I'm not here to disparage The Rock. I like The Rock, but we talked about this on the Black Adam review. The guy has an ego. And it felt like for a long time that he was very much trying to create his own little pocket universe, 
certainly during a time where there was a transitional period where he might not have had somebody over him to say like, yeah, you can't do that because the Warner Brothers Studios heads allowed him to get Henry Cavill back. Mm -hmm. They were moving forward possibly with the Black Adam 2. There was chatter about a Hawkman spitoff. You know, what were they going to do with Dr. Fate? I felt that, you know, the Rock situation was sort of resembling what he had done with the Fast and Furious franchise where he Mm. left that franchise and kind of created his own little sandbox with Mm -hmm. Hobbs and Shaw. And it felt like he was trying to recreate that momentum here with DC, but he can't do that now. And and I don't know if The Rock plays well with others. That's why the whole shit with Fast and Furious broke down because him and Vin Diesel just can't get on the same page. And so it feels like even before it got going, before we got any momentum, The Rock's tenure in DC is like all but swiftly over, especially because Black Adam didn't make nearly the amount of money that they thought it would have made. Shazam 2, is that done for you? Or is Shazam, that universe, Zach Levi, do you think that that's done? I'm just going to quickly run through these these projects coming out in 2023. Like, what do you think sticks, if anything? What do you think's done? Shazam, how do you feel about that one? I want it to stick, man. But uh, I after after the Henry Calvin news, I, I just don't see it, man. Uh, it's saddening because, I, I, again, I have a feeling this movie's going to be good. But uh, I guess not, <laughs> unfortunately. What about the Flash? Is that a is that a funeral for everything that's happening with the Snyderverse? No. <laughs> that I'm actually if that movie still comes out, I ain't gonna lie, I'm still surprised. Like they still know something that we don't know. The fact that this movie's still coming out, they know something we don't know. It's like you got rid of all this other shit and ain't told us Flash is canceled. Crazy to me, but we are gonna have to see with that one. But I think it's absolutely gone for sure. Apparently, Henry Cavill and Gal Gadot both filmed cameos for that movie, and wow. reports were saying that those have now been removed because, you know, why would you include them? You don't want to promise things that aren't going to happen. Both of them are pretty much out. And so, yeah, (laughs) I don't be that sad. Henry Cavill got paid 250 K. So, I mean, he'll be fine, but you know, it is one of those things. That's just a cameo. He got, he got paid 250 K for his cameo in black Adam and another 250 for the flash cameo. So we're talking half a million for For 30 30 seconds. seconds. (laughs) Exactly. So my guy will be fine. Um, Blue Beetle, this is weird because we don't know where it exists. Mm-hmm. Do they just keep it as like a standalone? Like, oh, this is like a nice little side project. How does Blue Beetle fit in with all this? This is the one project that I feel like James Gunn is going to adapt. He's going to say Blue Beetle exists here and Blue Beetle also exists in my new universe. Not that this is, I don't think he'll say this is the first movie of the DC universe. But sure. I think after time goes on, we know that Blue Beetle exists and he'll bring Jaime Reyes back in as the same Blue Beetle. That's the one I do feel like. Like, hmm, just the direction I feel like he's going in. I don't know. Part of me feels like he'll keep this one. I like that idea. It's easily adaptable because theoretically there aren't any connections. And it's still further enough out from the movie that they can make some small tweaks if they have exactly. to. Um, mm-hmm. Aquaman, I think you already said how you feel about that one. He's going to probably be out as Aquaman, but potentially maybe come back. In the yep. form of Lobo, apparently, because that's like, <laughs> I guess everybody wants that now. So, you know, perhaps that's the case there. The last one, which I think is the trickiest one, James Gunn's own projects, The Suicide Squad and mm. Peacemaker. What do you think the fate of those are? Do they stick? Do they keep those few small pieces that he specifically worked on around? Or do they also just wipe the slate clean of those? I think Peacemaker does get another season. Um, but I don't I don't think the other stuff. I don't think the Amanda Waller. I don't think the Suicide Squad makes sense right now. I th- again, I, I still have a feeling Peacemaker does stay around, just what the show did and what part of me feels like he already wrote the thing. <laughs> so he's going to do the thing. I feel like that's going to is going to be his side pocket project and he'll keep that one. But everything else, I, I, I see it going. 
I hear you. I think that that uh, that probably makes the most sense. I think ninety nine percent of this stuff goes. If anything gets kept, it's it's like a character or maybe mm-hmm. like one thing. But I think the vast majority of the stuff goes because they have to build. They have to build their own vision. They have to build it from the ground up. It is going to be tough. It's going to be a lot of challenging things that have to occur. But you can't just like replace a broken window fixture. Like if you're going to remodel the house, remodel the fucking house. Like go go yep. all in, you know, because that's the only way you're going to achieve what you're setting out to do. But with that being said, ladies and gentlemen, that's all we have for this episode of Two Black Nerds. That's all we have for this season of Two Black Nerds. Thank you again for tuning into another podcast and another year of just great conversations, great chatter, great talk about all the biggest things in the world of movies, TV, video games, anime, wrestling, whatever it is that we covered. Thank you all again for rocking with us for this year of 2022. We will be back, but we will be back next year in 2023. We're going to take a few weeks off end off this season go spend some time with our families our loved ones go take a little time to reset and recharge and of course we will be back in 2023 to talk about all the latest and the greatest stuff in the world of entertainment but until then feel free go back re-listen to some episodes revisit some of the podcasts we've previously done take this opportunity to catch up and hit us up on social media we'll be there as well and who knows if anything happens and anything goes down that's just crazy we might have to hop on twitter spaces (laughs) and have a conversation but we'll be around to definitely keep up with y'all but Again, appreciate everything that's happened this year. Appreciate all the support. But until next year, until 2023, have a safe holiday season, and we'll see y'all next time. Yes, sir. We are Audi 5000. Please check out our Two Black Panthers Forever collection at twoblacknerds.com. For the last time, this is the year of 2022 Black Nerds. Remember, always bet on black. Appreciate y'all. Love y'all. Thank you for listening to another episode of Two Black Nerds, where we're too black, too nerdy. Happy holidays, y'all. Peace.